0: Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. As you can tell from the title, we'll talk about Wonder Woman 2017. But if you don't want to miss any of the upcoming shows after you download this one, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney 2. That's where I give the uh, hints and tell what the uh, people who follow me all the podcasts I'm doing on this show and my other podcasts. Please rewind the RF for M Retro Show. We can find that show and all the other shows part of the Real fans for real movies podcast network at rf four as in the number four rm dot com. That's rf four rm dot com. And if you want to follow where all my short films are and all the kind of video stuff they do on on the internet, you go to youtube.com slash through the productions so you can take you right there to my channel, and you can see all the short films and other videos I'm making, and if you like that stuff, subscribe to the show, so you never miss any of those videos that are going up. But like I said, we're talking about Wonder Woman 2017. Now, I can't do it alone. I gotta have a co-host with me. And this co-host, she's kind of like a... I, I wish I had her drive and just like her energy to the podcast so much, because she's so consistent with that. I wish I had that kind of drive to be that consistent with all the work that she does and all the podcasts she puts out as of course she's the host of her own show i love that movie so lisa the host of i love that movie welcome back to anything goes
1: hey tim uh, great introduction <laughs> i'll try to live up to that um i really appreciate you having me back on and i'm excited to talk about this movie
0: yes I, I always say like put you up in a put you up there and it's like all right let's see if you get live up. To, i love to i love to put the pressure on the co-host like that like like oh yeah. shit i uh and, i mean it's i'll not do a, my best well that's all we can expect from you and that's all we we want i'm, I'm not going to be like kevin smith and go on like a six minute sol- soliloquy before i introduce a guest where <laughs> thank, the, you. thank you and where you're like all right there's no way you can live up to that kind of build up but like i said we're talking about wonder woman the 2017 movie so let's jump into our review of it Right now. Okay. Before we get into the movie itself, um, I know you said like you weren't really big into comic books like growing up and everything, but were you aware of Wonder Woman? Like, did you have any real kind of exposure to any Wonder Woman media before this movie?
1: You know, I feel like because of the time that I grew up, so I was born in 83. And in the 80s and 90s, I don't remember Wonder Woman having a big presence. Um, I never watched like the old uh, Justice League cartoons. I didn't really, wasn't super aware of the Linda Carter show because that was the 70s. Um, and so it wasn't really, you know, in my sphere. Uh and, and like you said, I didn't really read a lot of comics. I think the biggest thing that I was aware of was Batman and I was a big fan of Batman, but that never extended into me learning a lot more about all the other superheroes at that time.
0: Gotcha. And when this movie was announced, um, what like did you have like high expectations going into it, or are you just like, oh, it's just going to be another superhero movie? Um, and I assume this is prior to BVS coming out.
1: Right. Um, so by the time that this came out, I was all in, you know, I, I was definitely deep into like, comic book fandom by that point. I had been for a couple of years. And so yeah, it was highly anticipated for me. I was following every little nugget of news and getting very excited about, you know, what this was going to be. And so yeah, my expectations were really high. I was kind of nervous going in. I'm like, I hope <laughs> that they live up to the, the movie that I have in my head.
0: Which is totally fair, and I know there was a sort of criticism of Gal Gadot's performance um, in BVS, that they found her to right, be. right, right, and and I and I know that she like a lot of people like she was not her everybody's first choice to to play Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. and they said like like there were critics online saying, oh she's too skinny how can she be Wonder Woman yada yada yada, and it seemed that. The, the unfortunately that the, the deck was sacked against against this movie before it came out, and it was like rather like rather than like I said, Brent Clark, like he just used this phrase in the most recent "Fans Without Borders" episode, like prove me that you're a bad movie. So it like show me that you're a bad movie rather than show me you're a good movie. Like because there's a lot of people going to a movie with their arms crossed that is like all right, show me that you're a good movie that you're worth my time and effort yada yada yada, versus like okay. I'm here for a good time and then you have to tell me if you're a bad movie or not. It, it seems unfortunate that some people were going into that movie with that kind of trepidation.
1: Oh, man, you're you're absolutely right. And there were just so many different angles and layers to the discourse going into the film. And it's unfortunate. It seems that, you know, I kind of thought that, OK, well, this is the first one like this, really. So that's going to end. But consistently, anytime there is a big budget franchise with a female lead, I mean, the discourse going in is just always like that. And it comes from all angles. Like you said, criticizing their body type, criticizing their, uh, you know, what background they have, criticizing, you know, what they did in their previous work. And, you know, unfortunately, with a lot of actresses still they don't always have like these long careers and all these diverse projects. You know, she came from the Fast and the Furious franchise. And it was easy for a lot of people to go, well, she's a model. And she came from Fast and the Furious, she must be an awful actress. But you know, there's really not a whole lot to go on. And even her scene in BVS is so small, it's really impossible to judge her acting abilities from that quick scene so you know that coupled with it being you know the first female superhero movie of this caliber i know people are like oh well there were other ones but they were they were nowhere near this level this budget this you know uh consideration and wonder woman herself that you just can't really compare pretty much any other female hero to the history that she has so it really is a first and you know with all that pressure going in unfortunately that's there's all this baggage that people walk in when they see it and that continued with Captain Marvel and you know i think further on down the line we're, that's really going to go down uh, but i think it's just bigger right now because of because of that environment
0: yeah i mean you think of it like just from budget wise because like there were there were other female led superhero movies before this like mm-hmm. you had electra and Catwoman. Catwoman. <laughs> but both, like, Elektra apparently had a, a budget between 45 and $65 million. And Catwoman was, like, around $80 million or 100 depending on certain accounts. And then, then you have Wonder Woman, which is, like, somewhere between 120 and 150 It's obviously, sure. it's, like, just from the money behind this project, it was obviously, like, it's a bigger gamble,
1: Sure. And, you know, there were a lot of criticisms about uh, Patty Jenkins, you know, she had only done movies like Monster. And, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard a lot when I talk about it on my show that, unfortunately, a lot of female directors don't get a lot of diverse projects, they stay in that documentary category, or they stay, you know, they have one breakout hit, and then you never see them again. That's been a pretty consistent pattern in Hollywood for a long time. So it's impossible to compare a woman's you know, direct director's credentials to a male one, unfortunately. So, you know, that was another hurdle to get through, you know, oh my gosh, they're gambling everything. They're putting it on a female director that hasn't done a lot of big projects. Um, You know, a lot has changed even just since this movie came out, but that's, that's the place that we were at at the time. So, you know, that's what this movie was up against it. Like, it's almost like it had to be the best movie in the entire world, or, you know, it it was a failure, (laughs)
0: Yeah, I I mean, it is so curious, like you mentioned, it's only three years ago, but we've had of movies of this um, budget and caliber been held by more female filmmakers. And I think that that is one thing you have to credit this movie for is because the movie was a success that say like, all right, studio realizes like, like, it almost seems like studio execs will look around just like, did you know, ladies can make movies too? I know i it is it's ridiculous i I, I didn't believe it myself
1: <laughs> you know I had a story on my recent episode where we talked about the movie to Wong Fu um where the there's a female director on that movie and she happened to get pregnant around the time that they were starting filming and the uh, nobody wanted to touch the project no no male or no male directors wanted to direct it because they just felt the subject matter of these three drag queens going on a road trip was just too controversial. But she wanted the project. But then she got pregnant and they basically wanted her to leave. They were like, we can't insure you because what if you have the baby? And Steven Spielberg actually had to step in, convince her to get back on board. And he called um, the studios and promised that if she did back out or she did have the baby, that he would step in. And I mean, that was just like, I think that movie came out in the 90s. I mean, that's not that long ago. And that's kind of, you know, that that's a really ridiculous thing to do, to, to actually say that, you know, you, we can't have you film this. Well, what if you have the baby? I mean, that's silly, you know. And But that's something that happened. It really did happen. And it took her, you know, male co-stars or male... I'm sorry. uh Peers standing up for her. He stood up for her. Robin Williams, and they, and so she got the movie made. But otherwise, that wouldn't have happened. And you know, that's just one story. We don't hear all the other ones. But I think that the the atmosphere in Hollywood for a long time, you know, a lot of these directors just kind of had the odds stacked against them. And we're starting to see that reverse a little bit, which is which is great.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it is like talk about like having like possibly the best ace in the hole. Like if something like was that to go wrong with that scenario is like, like Spielberg. Right, they have su-
1: Steven Spielberg. <laughs> it's like
0: as yeah. the backup, like, okay. And, that... and many
1: other women, you know, that direct movies didn't have Steven Spielberg as their friend to step in. So, yeah. you know, that just makes you wonder how many people did not have that advantage. But, you know, he, he personally thought it was ridiculous. So he was like, I'll do what I have to do, but you're, you're definitely directing this, you know? <laughs> so, kind of a heartwarming story
0: yeah it is curious because you think of like big budget movies like and like almost like action movies up to this point like the only like female director most people can point to at this point in in the united states anyway was catherine bigelow
1: right right absolutely
0: and like she started doing more like different kind of movies but like like after like strange days she started doing more more diverse movies like k-19 and then hurt locker and Zero Dark Thirty. She wasn't doing the big mm-hmm. kind of bombastic uh, blockbusters that that dominate Hollywood, and so it, it was kind of like it was unfor- It was a void that it needed to be filled, and luckily, mm-hmm. Patty Jenkins kind of led the charge with this movie.
1: Right, right, yeah, you know, and and those movies that she rose to, you know. The level that she did, I mean, they were always male subjects, right? So even that, you know, again, two things kind of stacked against you. If you choose your lead to be female, the story to be female-centered, and you're a female director, well, you know, <laughs> the movie doesn't necessarily get a lot of coverage up until now.
0: Yeah, and it's just rather unfortunate that that was the case. Um, I'm just glad hopefully i'm just hoping like because you yeah. that we we do continue so far, on the, so good. yeah exactly yeah. like let's not have any speed bumps there and <laughs> so before we get into my history of the movie like all right so what was your first experience seeing this in the theaters like
1: um amazing i you know i walked in like i said with kind of high expectations i had seen monster which is a movie that you know, I saw one time, and I'm never going to watch again. It was just rough, and <laughs> it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. Um, but I knew she knew what to do, you know, behind the camera. So I was pretty confident there. Um. I kept seeing a lot of really great coverage of Gal Gadot behind the scenes, her training, her talking, and I liked the presence she brought to that character. I thought that, uh, you know, having the character feel kind of, I don't know, like old world, you know, rooting it in like mythology and all that um because she's kind of had like a couple different backgrounds in the comics but that that's the one that I like the most or when they lean into that more um those are the ones that I like the most and so I was excited to see that and you know honestly right when the opening scene kicked up I just had such a blast all the way to the very end absolutely absolutely adored it I kind of felt like, oh my gosh, this is like how guys feel when they watch Iron Man, you know? Like, it just felt really good to to see all those ladies on screen and, um, and just how much fun they were having and just how great of a story it was. And, yeah, I just really enjoyed it.
0: Very nice. Um, my personal history with Wonder Woman is that, like, I knew of Wonder Woman. I had not read any of her comics up until this movie came out. But, like, I had seen her, obviously, in... The Justice League cartoon. That was yeah, probably, yeah. That, that was probably like the most um, exposure I had to the character. Like I knew of Wonder Woman, and I knew that like oh, the big three at DC or DC's Trinity was Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. And I always, because, but then you think of like <clears throat> you think of Marvel, like you think of like their. Like their Mount Rushmore of characters, you think. All right, you think Spider Man, you think of Captain America, you think of the X Men, which is like, all right, that's a mixed group of people of all different backgrounds. But it's so I always found it so curious and is really I don't want to say heartwarming or just like that like that one third of the powers that be at DC, like oh, it's a female led. Uh, she's she's a woman, and the the fact that she is she could stand her ground against Superman, and the, but she she's not just like all Bruce, strength, but she's caring and she's loving and she will use her strength if need be, but she will go a nonviolent route uh, up until that point.
1: Yeah, I feel like I didn't answer your question. I'm going to try again.
0: No, <laughs> right, no, no, it's um, fine.
1: <laughs> I, I, uh, I agree with everything you're saying. And so by this point, I had read like, I think, Flashpoint and a few other comics. I hadn't read a ton of Justice League comics yet, but I had watched, um, like, the Justice League Unlimited cartoon and, um, you know, a few other things like that. So I was more aware of her character by that point. And that's kind of when I started to realize that, you know, the image I had of her, I think, was probably from the Linda Carter show. And they definitely touch on her origins, so it's not that I'm not aware of the Amazons, But I feel like in like the new 52 and in uh, even in Justice League Unlimited, it feels like they lean into more of sort of making her a almost like, um, you know, Xeno warrior princess type, sort of taking that aesthetic and, you know, making her look a little bit more warrior um, than some of the older Outfits did. And so I was like, oh, okay, I kind of, now I get where they're coming from with this. And I think that's also where a lot of the, you know, blowback came from uh, Gal Gadot being Wonder Woman. Some people were like, well, we would have preferred like a Lucy Lawless type character uh, to be her. And so I was like, oh, okay, I kind of. Understand who she is, what she's about, and now I'm even more excited. And like you said, she is part of the original trilogy, which I think I don't know that general audiences know that. I certainly didn't until I started really looking into comics and watching, um, like I said, the animated series and even the really old animated series uh, from. 60s or 70s, um, she's always there and very much a important character. She doesn't feel like, you know, um, I don't want to offend anybody with this, but like, you know, the Pink Ranger or something. It doesn't feel like she's just, here's one female character. It feels like she is... Uh, the main one of the main characters like you said and it is strange that in all this time you know we've had how many superman movies how many batman movies you know they just never felt confident enough or studios didn't to release a wonder woman film and you know so by that point i my expectations of who she was going to be in this universe were pretty high
0: yeah and and like you think it's like 51 percent of the population are female yeah and, and you're not appealing to that it's like and you're all, like so many careers are are rooted to the bottom line i feel like that would be something that you'd want to foster and like and and exploit i know it's a, it's a poor choice of words right there but it's like hey we have this audience here we're not tapping why shouldn't we be leaning into that it, it is right. curious that it took so long to get to that point
1: hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I've heard guys say, you know, I've always been kind of in the nerd sphere and have always liked things that are considered, you know, guy interests. So I heard a lot growing up like, oh, my girlfriend, you know, she doesn't like what I like, or my wife or, and I'm like, yeah, but they don't really market a lot of these projects to appeal to women, necessarily. Like you mentioned earlier, the Catwoman movie or Electra, it doesn't really feel like those movies are aimed at women. I think a lot of times they were aimed at young boys. Like, what would young boys want to see in a superhero? And not to say that you're not allowed to consider that demographic, because I don't think that's true, but when it's exclusive, you know, you're not going to draw in that other half of the crowd. Um, but if you do aim, you know, some of the interest and, uh, you know, some of the consideration of how the characters handled at women, it's going to, influence whether or not they buy a ticket
0: yeah it, it, like it's you like so many i guess male-centric uh i guess geeks or nerds whatever uh script, if you want to use it's like uh, like i i can't show anybody i can't show my lady or my partner like anything <laughs> anything's i like because it's like well it, it's unfortunate a lot of stuff's not pointed to the like it's unfor- like it's it's not made for them so it's kind of hard to get into and but, but, but also just comics in general, like, all right, we're gonna drop you into this era of comics, but you have to you need to know this stuff before you get to know this stuff, and so it's a little hard for people to get into. There's a reason yeah. why Princess Leia was such a groundbreaking character because so many uh, women to young girls like were like, okay, the biggest pop culture phenomenon, and one the one of the main characters who holds her own is is a woman. Of course, mm-hmm. they're to latch on to you. You wonder why you wouldn't lean into that. And it is, it's funny you bring up Lucy Lawless, because I know she was one of the people that, by fan casting, wanted for years, they wanted her for Wonder Woman.
1: Yeah, she would have been great. I mean, no doubt. I think, too, um, you know, some of my friends didn't like the casting either. They were They kind of had the same opinion. They're like... Why do women always gotta be so, you know, skinny and, and why is she so hyper feminine? And, you know, kind of was upset with that. I, you know, think about the fact that, so I grew up with, you know, female heroes like, uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver and, uh, you know, I can't remember her name, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor. Yeah. Um, there was an image in Hollywood of like, if there is a female lead, she's gotta be, I mean, pretty masculine. Um, or at least coded masculine. And, um, I think that's fine. I think those heroes were awesome. I think they were wonderful, you know, role models, but not everybody's like that, right? So there needs to be room. There's a spectrum of what it means to be a woman. And I think that there's a, it's okay to have different representation. Uh, Wonder Woman is not that type of representation. She's just, that's just not who she is. You know, Captain Marvel her newest kind of background is more like that, is more like those older action stars. And that's great. And, you know, a lot of my friends really relate to her a lot more. I related more to wonder woman because I felt like she was closer to what, you know, I could relate to and I liked her values and her, uh, her motivation. So I think, you know, that's part of it as well. And I mean, I loved Xena, like who didn't love Xena? She's awesome, but yeah, not, not everything has to be the same thing. (laughs) You know.
0: Exactly. I mean, I, I don't think anybody, man, woman, or non gender binary, like will say, like, yeah, I'm the kind of person who could kick in the door and blow away a bunch of xenomorphs with a machine gun. I don't think everybody's gonna say <laughs> that and confidently say, Yeah, I could totally do that. No, it's yeah. a certain it's a certain segment of people who can do that. And sure. I love there is there is a meme that goes around every once in a while uh, of Xena. Where it's like her in the middle of a battle and she's like screaming at the top of her lungs. And the, the and the text for the meme says like, I am a delicate flower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Exactly. And I remember my girlfriend at the time, like she was disappointed at, initially with Gal Gadot's uh, casting. Because she wanted Lucy Lawless. Because she grew up on Xena, Warrior Princess.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, she literally is a warrior princess. I, I totally understand why somebody would prefer... You know, that type for that role. It makes sense.
0: Definitely. And so when this movie came out, like you have to take into account, all right, Man of Steel made money, but was kind of diversive amongst fans and critics.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree that now, especially when we still see it every single day on Twitter. <laughs> yes.
0: There's still still people arguing about that. And yeah. I, I always want to know what what's it like to live in a time warp, but that's beside the point. Um, BVS. I'm not sure I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we're all kind of living in a time where we don't know what day is. We just know sun goes up, sun goes down. Oh, yeah. um, BVS comes out, made money, not as much as they wanted, but also. A lot, yeah. Yeah, I I know that's the the thing that people say, like, oh, it didn't make a billion dollars. I'm like, so when did did that become the floor for successful comic book movies?
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, you are so right. I mean... Yeah, expectations are just—we're just spoiled now. We've just got too many good things, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, sure, if you want to be like, hey, it's the first time Superman and Batman are on the big screen, like you would, you would, your expectations are high for that. Sure, and it does suck that it didn't reach that point, but like, yeah, it still made money. It still made a lot of money. It was an expensive movie, but it still earned a profit, not as much as the studio probably wanted, but sure. profit nonetheless. Suicide qu- comes out, that was a hu- surprise hit, but also diversity amongst fans and critics. Has anybody detected a pattern here?
1: <laughs> They're very good at making controversial films.
0: Yeah, I-, I set all this up because going into this one, I had trepidation. I was oh, worried. I see.
1: Yeah, I get that. Yeah, there there was a part of me that was worried. I was like, if this is not successful, it then becomes the measure once again of, you know, oh, these female-led hero properties are too much of a gamble. They're not uh, profitable. We need to stop doing these and... Yeah, I I did have some of those concerns going in. You know, my philosophy has always been that that's kind of ridiculous because we never see, like, a movie starring, you know, a male lead and think, hmm, do male lead movies work? I mean, you know, that sounds crazy, right? It was just a bad movie. Um, But unfortunately for female-led projects, they seem to be held to a different standard. And like you said, the studio wasn't exactly at this point setting her up to be a, a home run hit.
0: Right. I mean, sure, the trailers got everybody height, but that's the power yeah. of trailers.
1: Oh, no kidding! There's so many trailers that are like ten times better than the actual film you end up seeing. I mean, it's it's an art, you know. <laughs> there's a separate team making those trailers, so yeah, you're right. I,
0: I, I mean, there there's dedicated lists on YouTube where people say ten <laughs> trailers that are better than the movies. Um, yep. And so I remember sitting down in the theater. I have my Wonder Woman T-shirt on, and I'm just like. Lights go down, I look down at the logo right before the movie started and I I say to myself, I'm like, I hope to God this works. I hope this is good. I, I really don't because I really don't want A, I don't want a, just a bad movie. Sure. And is that and feel like I wasted my time, but B, it's like alright, I don't want to be because I like I'm have to defend myself against uh, fans of like, oh, I'm a fan of DC stuff, so I got to defend myself because I remember.
1: Yeah, DC apologists.
0: <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I was at a film festival once. My friend Alex comes up to me, and he's introducing me to one of his friends. And he's like, hey, this is my friend Tim. He's a filmmaker, and he's a DC fan.
1: Oh, man. That's literally
0: how he introduced me to this, his friend. Oh. And I'm just like, okay, just throw me into a pool with some weights around my ankles while you're at it.
1: I know, and it it really did feel like if you admit that you like those movies, yeah, that people, that your street cred is somehow threatened, and, you know, people think differently of you, like, oh, you must not really know what good movies are. You're one of those fans that'll just, like, anything they throw out there on the screen, etc. And, yeah, I can I can see that being kind of annoying.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember I was in line to uh, get Kevin Conroy's uh, signature at uh, New York Comic Con. I think this was, yeah, this is just, like, October 2017 and so I'm online and I'm like okay I'm just gonna go and I'm gonna get my signature but like this is when Kevin went on lunch like five people in front of me so we had to wait an hour until he came back and the three dudes in front of me are just arguing with well, one guy is a, it was a very big MCU fan one friend who <laughs> like was a huge DC fan the other one the third one is the guy who's trying to play mediator between the two of them and it was just the same argument for an hour back and forth and yeah. I I, I got so exhausting. And I'm like I'm like I like I was just, I'm just going through my bag here like, "Alright, here's a book and here's my headphones. I'm going to blast this and try and read at the same time just to drown out the conversation because I know if I get into it, I'm going to have to be escorted out of the building because I'm going to lose my <laughs> shit."
1: Well, that's the other thing, too, is I think some people are truly energized by those conversations. Um, You know, there's a lot of sports fans that are passionate about their football team or other team, and they love those arguments. I mean, they like to trash talk each other. They like to get into it. I just am not like that. So for me, when somebody starts really laying into me, I just kind of want to exit, you know, so not that I can't argue, because I'm I'm sure you've seen on my Twitter, I've definitely gotten (laughs) into a few tiffs. but I don't enjoy it the way that some people do. Um, And so that particular conversation, Marvel versus DC, has always been exhausting to me. So I, I am Right with you there,
0: yeah. And so that's why, like, I was, I'm just so glad I was calm and collected when I went to get Kevin Conroy's signature and everything. So it's like, okay, this is worth it. This is, this is fine. Everything's going to be okay. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the movie, like, I, I was blown away by the movie. I ended up seeing it three times in theater.
1: Nice. And uh, yeah, I saw it two or three times. I think. I, I don't. I don't know if I saw it three. I definitely saw it twice at
0: least. It, it was one of those things, like. You want to go see it? Let's go see it. It was like, like I was just looking around at my friends. Like, you want to go see Wonder Woman? Let's go see Wonder Woman. It was just looking for excuse to go see it again, and again.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was wonderful.
0: Um, and so, but before the movie got to the big screen, it has a wild and varied history before it made it to the big screen. So let's go back to the origins of the character itself. The credited uh, creator of Wonder Woman is William Moulton Marston, or I think M O U L T O N. I think that's Moulton. I think, or I may be mispronouncing his middle name. I apologize. And he, along with his wife, Elizabeth Holloway Marston, and their polyamorous life partner, Olive, <laughs> Olive Byrne, the three of them are the real creators of Wonder Woman. And I find it so mm-hmm. curious that, like, in the early, or in the late 1930s, early 1940s, that they had this kind of uh, bohemian lifestyle between the three of them, and then, that. Like, Marston had children with both women and they just loathed them just like, all right, like, all right, you have two moms and one dad. And it was, it is something you would imagine would have been frowned upon at the time, but obviously the kind of fluidity of their relationship is kind of, definitely influenced the creation of Wonder Woman.
1: Yeah. And I think too, you know, you have to put that relation to relationship. I'm sorry, into the context of the time. I mean, There's a lot of security with those two women staying with him in terms of how they're viewed in society as well. So it would be interesting to know, you know, I guess we'll we'll never really know know, to be a fly on the wall. Right. But it it does seem like um, that relationship was definitely, like you said, alternative and having those two female perspectives while he wrote these stories definitely influences how, you know, Wonder Woman came out on, on the pages of those comic books.
0: Yeah, and to the point that when Wonder Woman was coming out in 2017, <clears throat> there's a movie called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman oh, yeah. that apparently it was just a examination of their life and how it end up creating like how they end up creating Wonder Woman. Even mm-hmm. to the point that the the poster is like like almost like a carbon copy of the Wonder Woman poster, like same yeah. color scheme and everything. Uh
1: huh. Yeah, I never saw that, but I, I thought it was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, and I'm just like, that's just really smart timing to, to come out, especially that <laughs> year right there. I've yeah. not seen it either, but I really want to. And yeah. So in, I think, uh, October 25th, 1940, an interview was given by Olive Byrne when they were talking about comic books and how it, the the interview caught the attention. The, it was a publicized uh, interview in the publication the family circle and it was titled don't laugh at comics where they said they, there there's a great educational potential in comic books this is what marston was saying and max Gaines, who hired marston as an educational consultant for national periodicals and american all-american publications two companies that would later merge to become dc comics so in the early 1940s wonder woman was created for to be just another a a kind of offset to all the male centric characters of the DC line and she's gone through several different kind of iterations throughout the years and like how she's kind of depicted and that's the one cool thing about the Wonder Woman movie is that they cherry pick from different versions
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you know the the clay story that her mother tells her versus sort of the story that we're, we come to know is sort of a blending of two different two different origins for sure.
0: Yeah, the clay, being made from clay is obviously Marston's original uh, conception of the character, no pun intended there. Um, <laughs> and then the the fact that Hippolyta and Zeus had a relationship and Diana was a result of it, that's coming from the New 52 which obviously... Mm-hmm. So many DC properties were taking their cues from up until recently the end of, what was it, Justice League, uh, was it Apocalypse War or Justice League Dark I haven't <laughs> seen
1: that yet. Be careful.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but I know I think <laughs> it's supposed, it's supposed to so be the end of the New 52 line in those movies. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And it's people believe, like, oh, they, they might be taking from Rebirth going forward. And mm. before the movie's this movie came out. Development back in Wonder Woman started back in all the way in 1996. Wow. With Ivan Reitman as a attached uh, producer and possible director. And there was, Joel Silver was going to produce it. Sandra Bullock was like one of the first people in contend contend to be a contender to star in it.
1: Yeah. Wow. Which, Very cool.
0: Yeah. Include Lucy Lawless was another name that was thrown around because of her, you know, her sure. being a star in Xena. And I think one of the biggest iterations before the movie came out was back in 2005, Warner Brothers um, hired Joss Whedon to write and direct Wonder Woman.
1: Yes, that did happen.
0: (laughs) It seems like you know of that production, you you might have some information there.
1: I've heard and read uh, parts of the script. Um, and I'm not a real big fan of that version of the character. I'll put it that way.
0: Yeah, it's, I think politely described that when Diana leaves Temuscura, she keeps getting into, I don't want to say death traps, but haphazard scenarios in the real world that Steve Trevor has to keep rescuing her from.
1: Right, and, and there seems to be an over-focus on, like, sexual harassment, too, in the script. Which I think that's something that happened a lot in like, you know, I know this was more recent than that, but in a lot of like 80s, 90s movies... If there was any feminism bent, it seemed to only focus on areas of sexual harassment. Like the only way that they could, you know, say this woman was powerful and in charge is if she has to like bat off all these men that are harassing her. And that's another thing I think too that people got really tired of, both men and women. You know, men are like, oh, they make all men look like dogs. And women are like, I'm really sick of this plot line. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, for the movie to be so focused on that, she's supposed to be this warrior. She's one of the Trinity. She's a huge deal. I mean, it would be the same like if if I watched a movie about, about Superman, and the entire time women were like harassing him, like that's not what Superman's about. And so in the same way, like Wonder Woman isn't a story about a woman that's overcoming harassment. You know, so to focus on that is just bizarre. Um, but I think at the time what people kind of thought women wanted to see, <laughs> I don't know. Very strange.
0: Yeah, it it, it was strange <laughs> indeed. I mean, and then like Kate Beckinsale or Anne Angelina Jolie were attached at one point to play Wonder Woman at that time.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, especially with their careers at that time.
0: Exactly, and then there was a TV pilot uh, about Wonder Woman that I think. Oh yeah. I don't know if it was NBC or one of the big networks did that. It's kind of like this is Pruder film like all right we're just gonna hide this from the public here we don't want anybody to see this
1: <laughs> oh, that's awesome
0: yeah and so by 2010 wonder woman became a real focal point there but and dc entertainment president diane nelson won Wonder woman to be the next big movie along with other movies that were in development like the flash and aquaman and Michelle McLaren in 2013 was attached to direct at one point and eventually left due to creative differences. And speaking mm-hmm. of creative differences, the eventual director, Patty Jenkins, was supposed to direct Thor The Dark World. That's right. But left due to creative differences.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, earlier you talked about how the studio, you you know, kind of didn't set up this film to be a home run, right? Marvel has been consistently a home run and uh it's been extremely successful so there's definitely some logic behind having a formula and having a team that's consistent the downside to that is that the creative freedom isn't always there so it kind of depends on if the director's vision falls in line with their vision then it's a great match and then sometimes it just doesn't and so it sounds like that particular time with patty jenkins and uh in Marvel, she just felt it wasn't a match. And then when she came over to DC, they offered her a role in a, or a uh, yeah, a role as a director in this movie, and and it it was in line with her beliefs and with her vision.
0: Yeah, and, and like Patty Jenkins, like along with Edgar Wright, were like the only two filmmakers that left a Marvel project up until that point due to mm-hmm. creative differences. But obviously, most recently, Scott Derrickson left Doctor Strange too. And right,
1: right, but it doesn't happen often. No to your point. Like, it's not something that happens very often.
0: No, I mean it's not with like the Flash project.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, that that project is just cursed. I, I I don't know.
0: I I know. Like, what was it Shutter, the horror streaming service, is right now doing a series called Cursed Films, where they're talking <laughs> about like things that happen on set and people that happens after the movies, like The Exorcist and Poltergeist. Like, I want the yeah. Swerve to be the final episode. That cool. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to watching it, but I want the last episode to be just the flash. Like I know it's not horror-based, <laughs> but just like this thing's in more development hell. It's like it's art Yardarsky's, like Dune. Like that's how this like turbulent this this project getting to the screen is. Seriously. And so in twenty fifteen, Patty Jenkins accepts the offer to direct Wonder Woman home Wonder Woman <clears throat> based on a screenplay by Alan Heinberg and the story was co-written by Heinberg, Zack Snyder, Jeff Johns, and Jason Fuchs
1: mm-hmm.
0: and after Gal Gadot was cast by Zack Snyder for BVS then she would eventually after the filming of that was completed go on to do Wonder Woman and shot in tw- in starting, beginning filming in 2015, they shot in England as well as in uh, southern Italy and it was one of those things that like you didn't see a lot of stuff like on the internet of leaked photos and everything. Like, there was some stuff when we went out there shooting stuff on the beach and some of the mm-hmm. castle stuff, but a lot of it was done on stage. So it wasn't like, a, oh, we're seeing all of the, we're breaking news right here by spy pics of the movie.
1: Yeah, I guess because it's a period piece, you know, a lot of it is not necessarily in the real world, like you said, and so you don't necessarily see all those scenes.
0: Yeah, and it was locked down sound stages, so it, it, it kept the public away from that. And so finally, it was released on June second, twenty seventeen, in the United States, and it would go on to make eight hundred twenty one point eight million dollars.
1: Wow! Yeah, nice. Yeah,
0: it, it just and it was one of those things where like it it was made a hundred and three million dollars in the first weekend. And the best thing about it is that it just kept making money. Like, it, the drop-off was very minuscule, and the movie had legs.
1: Yeah, the, the, the man was there. You know, women were coming back multiple times to see it, and men. And it, it was like, wow, there there's this void that needs to be filled, you know, and studios are starting to see that after that point.
0: Right. And I know that, like, there's we, I think we, we should just at least touch on this subject here. There were... Alamo, Alamo Draft House did put on, like, women-only screenings at one point before the movie came out, and, oh, and obviously no. the most secure men in the world took comforts with this. Obviously, they have no <laughs> insecurity about their masculinity whatsoever.
1: That was such a strange reaction because, you know, when I first saw that women-only screenings, I thought, well, it was for a charity, too, um, but I thought, you know, it's like saying, like, I'm going to have a girls' night. And having the girls over and having somebody go, just girls? Wow. So no men? Oh, so you girls are going to hang out with no men. I get it. It's like, that sounds like, that's crazy. Like, people have girls' nights and guys' nights all the time. So when they had these in the theater, I thought, oh, you know, they're celebrating the fact that uh, that there haven't been a lot of these movies and, uh, or any, and so they're going to have these women-only screenings and they're going to donate the money to, like, breast cancer or I can't remember exactly what the charity was for, but, you know, it was a way to drum up more interest in the film. It was a way to combine that with charity. It was a good visual. It was happening during, uh, you know, Women's Appreciation Day, International Women's Day. Like, all that stuff was kind of happening at the same time, and so that I just didn't really think of it as controversial. I know that now, or at least at the time, people were like, this is an obvious calculated move. You know, they don't want any men in the theater. Um, this is this is the start of a takeover. And that was just so bizarre to me because that thought never crossed my mind until I heard people say that. <laughs> because, you know, I consider myself a feminist and I don't have these agendas of pushing men out of the theater. I, I don't think anyone does. So it, it was just a very bizarre reaction to that. And they kept saying, you know, what if men had men-only screenings? And I was like, you know, they should do that. I mean, they should have like on on International Men's Day, which is also a thing, um, they should have a, a screening for men for, you know, prostate cancer or, or something else that affects men specifically. Like, do that, you know, like, that's a great idea. Not something that I'm afraid of happening, or, you know, I'm scared they're going to say no women can enter this theater. Um, And and also bizarrely, like, they did have these screenings, but then they also had regular screenings where everyone could attend. So, again, um, it really wasn't a big deal, and I think by the time it came out and they had the clown-only screenings, I think people were starting to understand, you know, that they had overreacted.
0: (laughs) Right. I I think the fact that they... Money was going to a good charity was lost in the noise. I think if people just read it like, what, woman-only screenings? Rebel, rebel, rebel.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like there's this intense fear that there's an agenda out there. And there, I mean, there's, everyone's got an agenda, right? I mean, there, there are agendas. Yes. But there's a fear that the agenda is to eliminate them and their voice. And that's not happening so it's you know it's one of those things that it's hard to prove to someone that truly believes that that it's not going on um but i i feel that there was probably an extremely small but vocal minority of people that you know thought these screenings were a huge threat it certainly did lead to a lot of you know coverage and it probably did ultimately help the film just do even better than before (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah I, I mean like it was just like one of the it was a thing that it got a lot of ink I mean, press wise so people's eyes were on this movie and yeah. I think it just some people took the little rascals he man woman haters club a little too seriously
1: <laughs> I love the little rascals I was thinking about them the other day
0: <laughs> <laughs> It, it, it was just, it's just baffling there and yeah like I, I sure met international men's day they watch Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and they watch that, that musical number, like, we're men. We're men in tights.
1: Tights! That's, I love that idea.
0: <laughs>
1: Do that, you know? Like, yeah, it's totally fine to have your own day and to be proud of who you are and all that all that good stuff. Like, nothing wrong with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure, like, everybody, like, I'm sure somebody, ha- everybody has an agenda to one degree or another, some people more extreme sure. than the other. It's it just, like, I just don't think there's a Illuminati plot to, uh, destroy uh masculinity out there. I don't really think most people right. want that. I think people just want an equal share. Like I said before, I think men, women and non-gender identifying people just want to be treated like humans. I think that's the one thing that people need to realize.
1: Right. Like we're a few years from that now and there are still coming out several superhero films that are starring men. Like that hasn't gone away. Right. You know, I think that was their fear that this was going to turn the tide and suddenly all, you know, movies would be starring, uh, I don't know, women, LGBT and people of color and no more men. And it's like, yeah, that hasn't happened. And, and, it, and it will not happen. So I I don't know. I feel like I think a lot of that discourse has died down now, it seems like. And that was kind of my theory. I was like, I think the more of these films that come out, people are going to start to see that 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 their fears are not true.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I know what was it the was it Charlie's Angels last year? Yeah, yeah. I, I know a lot of people have like said like oh like that movie had an agenda and it felt like it was very like it it seemed like a very sour point of view like that's what that how the movie was made. <laughs> and- yeah,
1: I I never saw it. I, it just um to me that that whole franchise had a moment, but by now I mean you know so. When when I was a kid, I remember seeing Charlie's Angels like on like you know Nick at Night, and then when the movie came out in like the 90s, I was really excited. It was like the three big women of the time in a movie together. But now, I mean, do little girls, teenagers, even 20 year olds even know who Charlie's Angels is? To me, the big problem with that movie is they didn't dramatically, uh, you know, update it. I think they could have paid homage to the original. I think that. I don't even think that that plot works now, um, but maybe if they had set it in the 70s or something, uh, that would have helped. But I just felt like there just wasn't enough energy for people to get up off their seats and go see Charlie's Angels.
0: Yeah, no. I I think like the, the question the filmmaker should have asked himself is, who's demanding this movie?
1: Yeah, like I get why she would, because I mean, she definitely grew up. Uh, it was Elizabeth Banks, right? Is that right? I think so. Yeah, she, you know, she, I'm sure, grew up with Charlie's Angels, and they were a big deal, and they were a big deal for women. Um, and, you know, I, I could see her being very connected to that, but it felt like the women that they casted and, you know, the environment that they're in, I, it just, it was a very strange, it just felt like, oh, okay, here's three, you know, female spies. But it, I don't think that there was enough of a, a connection to that fan base for people to go see it. Um, I, I felt like, I remember when it was announced, I, I was kind of excited about it because I, I liked those 90s films. And like I said, I watched the earlier show. Um, but they were using such fresh faces that, you know, I wasn't, a lot of them I wasn't familiar with. Um, and I found by the time the trailers came out, I was like, oh, I'll probably watch it like on, you know, direct TV or something, but I, I don't see me rushing out to go see this. I'm just not seeing anything in this trailer that... Has me that jazzed. I, I like Kristen Stewart, but yeah, just I don't, I don't know. I, I think they, that was the biggest misstep. Um, I haven't watched it, so I can't speak to the message of the film. But to me, the biggest problem was just I don't know that people wanted to see it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, and so like I know a lot of like there are very sensitive men there saying like, oh yeah, there was it was a movie made for women and everything. And I retort like, yeah, like I asked them like if that was the case. Why wasn't the movie a hit? Then I just don't think it was, yeah, it was just not a well unfortunately see
1: any movie starring women, like that's not enough for us, <laughs> like and also, you know, I remember Elizabeth Bank got in a lot of trouble when she publicly said, "You know, well, if you don't make a Marvel movie, uh, you know, who cares? No one goes and sees it. And you know, two things. I think she has a point um in that it's true that these days when you re- when you put a film out there, an action film you're up against a lot of films that are about superheroes, and there's a huge market that's, like, guaranteed. People are like, I'll buy a ticket if this has a superhero in it. I mean, that's true, right? Like, these movies do very well consistently. So she's right, but complaining about it doesn't necessarily fix the problem because I think if the movie had been really good and had the right kind of buzz, I think people would have seen it. Because, I mean, you've got your John Wicks and other films that are not superhero-based that people go see, but there does seem to be a trend of a lot of directors just kind of scratching their heads and going, why is it so hard now? Like, why is this such a big obstacle that didn't used to be here? And I think they're right, but, I mean, I don't know. That's just how it is. How do you convince everybody to stop going and seeing these movies? I think you can't do that, right?
0: (laughs) No, and I think the worst thing a filmmaker to do is to blame the lack of an audience on the audience right there. It's like, well, exactly. I did my job, you're you should have shown up right. for it. It's like, okay, like, yeah. it's it makes you look really petty and very defensive.
1: Yeah, like when, you know, Scorsese, one of my favorite directors, was like, ugh, you know, you guys are seeing all these stupid movies and you're not seeing mine movies. And it's like, well, yeah, like if I had like my family over – Um, and there were kids there, you know, we would probably throw the Avengers on and not Goodfellas. It doesn't mean that I don't really like Goodfellas. It's a great movie, but it's not a general audience film and nor does it need to be. So, yeah, it's like when he gets up there and and, and complains about it, you're kind of like, well, your movies were never, you know, big popcorn blockbuster films, and, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, that's why he made Hugo, because he couldn't show any of his movies to his kids. (laughs) <laughs> and so i i get that and yeah you're not going to put on the last temptation of christ when you have family over it's it's not right. one of those movies you watch for that well, it, it doesn't
1: mean i don't admire his work but yeah it's like they, there's a different time and place for different things and, and those kind of films are always going to make more money because more people can go see them and you know that's just how it is
0: right and i, but I think that's why when it comes to drama, like, or dramas that you, you'd you see, like the, the older, like 35 to $50 million drama movies are now just turned to TV shows
1: yeah, and they're thriving absolutely. on TV.
0: And that's where I think it's unfortunate that yes, that movies led by females should be just as enough, a box office draw as anything else in, in the movies. However, those kind of stories, it's just unfortunate. Currently, they thrive on TV, which right now is the only sense of entertainment we really have.
1: True. And I, I do think that, you know, part of it also is just the decision makers, right? You know, we'd all like to think that there's some extremely unbiased person that's picking these projects. Like, this is what's going to make money. This isn't. But that hasn't been the case. I mean, we found out from, you know, the Weinstein scandal uh, that they could be very petty and opinionated and... Uh, you know, make poor decisions, essentially. So for a long time, we were told that it's impossible for these, you know, female-led superhero movies to make any money. Uh, we can't make a Black Panther movie because, you know, not enough people will see a black superhero. And then we found out that was completely wrong. So, you know, I think uh, that can play too. And then, like you said, sometimes there's not a market. So it's kind of a combination of those things.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, if every movie could be a hit... And you could be a scientific formula where you can just plug things in and to make a, a hit movie. There'll be no Isn't bombs. is that what
1: Warner Brothers trying to do? But I disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I. <laughs> I don't like that plan for a lot of reasons. But yeah, yeah, you're right.
0: And so like that's why it's called – it's a calculated risk. And mm-hmm. luckily it seems like the odds are more and more in the favor of the filmmakers because they're recognizing, oh – there is an audience out there for these types of stories to be seen on the mm-hmm. big screen in the realm of comic book movies.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Which, this is what the show, this episode's about, so let's get to the comic book movie itself. Let's do that, yeah. uh, <laughs> And so the movie opens up in present-day Paris, where Diana Prince, played by Gal Gadot, and so in present-day Paris, Diana Prince receives a photo uh, delivered by Wayne Enterprises and a letter written by Bruce Wayne, in the photo, we see Wonder Woman and four men taking a photo taking place during World War One, And it prompts her to retell the story. And then we flash back to Queen Hippolyta and raising her, her daughter Diana on the hidden island of Themyscira. The home of the Amazons. Women warriors created by Zeus to protect mankind. And Diana, as a little girl, just wants to be a warrior. And she wants to be the fiercest warrior of them all, where Hippolyta doesn't want her to be want her to be trained whatsoever. Like there's no reason. There's no threats. There's no reason to be uh to go through that training. And Diana is consistent is insisting that she wants to be trained. And that's when Hippolyta tells the story of the Amazons, and we kinda get the big exposition jump uh dump of the whole story of like how they came to be. How do you feel like how this is set up, and we're introduced to Queen Hippolyta and her sister, Genela. I always mess up her name. Antiope? Is that how you pronounce her name?
1: I I believe so, yeah. Um, I love the way that these women are presented, and I like the way that the mascara looks, and I really love that that uh, exposition dump <laughs> uh, also because I think it looks so beautiful. It's like this painting that's moving. And I just thought it was a really pretty and artistic way to present the story and kind of give context to where, you know, the the Amazons feel like and are from a long time ago. So I think that adds to that aesthetic. Um, I like the casting of Robin Wright and uh, Connie Nielsen. And I thought it was an interesting choice, but I think it works. The fact that Gal Gadot, you know, she is Israeli and she has an accent and they don't have her get rid of that. That becomes part of the character uh of Diana. And she really uses that throughout the film. And so the other Amazons kind of come up with their own accent. It's not quite the same accent, but a similar and older sounding accent. And I thought that was another interesting choice for that first part. Um, I also like that they give us a little hint in this first part about, you know, the queen doesn't want her to train and the excuses, well, she's a human. Um, She's not an Amazon and that's why, but we're kind of slowly being fed breadcrumbs as to what's really going on with Diana and we'll find out later the real reason why her mother doesn't want her to fight.
0: Yeah. And I think it really is a smart decision to have all the, the ladies on scared to have accents like you mentioned because it it could just be so like how many ancient Greek or ancient Roman TV shows or movies where it's just oh it's just British people we're having them stand in for (laughs) ancient Greek or Roman characters
1: there's gotta be something to differentiate them right like you want to believe this is a different time and place and if they have just regular American accents for whatever reason we're like okay so I'm I'm seeing a bunch of people in costumes, but something about adding that accent really helps, I don't know, add to the, you know, add to the, to the film. And so in this case, I mean, they're going to go to London and run into a bunch of British people. So there's another reason right there where that British accent thing wouldn't work. Um, uh, So I guess that's another part of the reason why everyone has those. Also it'd be weird if she was the only one that had an accent. They all live on this Island. Like, how do you explain that? You know? So I think for a few different reasons, but, it worked. It was like a happy, you know, happy accident.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it could have turned into Inglorious Bastards, where the <laughs> bastards are supposed to be playing Italian filmmakers, and only one of the three of them actually can do an Italian accent convincingly. Right, right. Uh, uh, Dominic D'Acocco, <laughs> um, and it is. I love the casting of both Kyle Nielsen and Robin Wright because they're just mm. two actors I just enjoy their careers and. <laughs> I've always, like, it's so funny because you think of Robin Wright and what's her most famous role is probably Jenny from Forrest Gump. Yeah, and like I know a lot of people will say like, "Oh, Jenny's a terrible person," and everything. Until you stop and think that no, she had a terrible life right there, and she made some bad decisions, but she's not a bad person in Forrest Gump. I hate that it's such an e- that's such an easy argument to make about Forrest Gump. Yeah,
1: no, you're you're right. I'm I'm with you. I don't think she's a terrible person. I think she was a vulnerable person in a bad situation, and sure, people at risk make decisions that aren't great, but you know, ultimately, she was a victim for sure.
0: And I think that kind of almost unintentionally reflected on robin wright because her because she was the one we saw the most in that movie yeah and to see her in this as such a fierce warrior but such a warm heart and like then you see the further end of that spectrum you think of her character in house of cards where she is almost (laughs) more evil than kevin spacey's character on that show like you wonder like oh wait who's the real who's really pulling the strings here
1: Well, you know, unfortunately, in film and on TV, for such a long time, it it does seem like female characters that hit a certain age range are, like, automatically cast as villains, right? You know, when you think of, like, even in, like, Disney cartoons, all the villains are, like, older women that are so angry that they're not pretty and young anymore. Like, there's there's a thing that's happening with that, for sure. And that's consistently been the case for a long time. So in this movie, we really break that trope with two women that are in that age group and typically play tough, villain characters. And instead, they're incredibly warm, uh, wonderful people. And I think that it just highlights that there's a need for those types of characters. And in particular, a lot of times in superhero films, the focus is largely on the, on the father. Um, and in this movie, it's on the mother. And that's sort of a trend in the DC films. Um, you know, with this movie and then Aquaman and even, you know, BVS and I think even a little bit Man of Steel, there's a bigger focus on the mom. And I like that because I just think that that's something that's a missed opportunity in a lot of a lot of those types of films.
0: You're you're saying something that I've thought about for a while that the MCU has a lot of daddy issues, <laughs> there's so many And
1: it's it's always going to be your parents that mess you up, right? So it's got to be your dad or your mom. So it's got to be it's got to be one of them. But yeah. you're right. In Marvel, it's like, man, that, you know, uh Thor's dad is just terrible and th- there's a bunch of dad problems in all those movies, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, like uh, Tony Stark's uh, dad it was not the yep. greatest person in yep. the world. Mm-hmm. Um there was oh, Pier-
1: um... Peter's dad, uh Quill. Yes. Um yeah.
0: And T'Challa's yeah. father and Black Panther made kind of a terrible decision as well yep. like and, yep. and then you think of the d c e u where it's 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 a lot more mother centric,
1: and they're not making terrible decisions no <laughs> they're like in their uh you know on their team and and they're supportive and they're inspiring so yeah, it's a very different uh a very different bent there on those films
0: yeah and and it's something that you uh you brought up like it seems like female like actors or or just have a have a shelf life of what kind of characters they can play
1: they switch over to mommy dearest at some point right it's like they have to be like the wicked mother wicked stepmother kind of role and it's like yeah they they don't always have to be that like there's so many different ways to portray uh that age group so it's really refreshing that it seems like we're kind of turning that idea on its head and getting more you know characters like this in movies
0: Exactly. It reminds me of a conversation in Shane Black's Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, Mm -hmm. where Michelle Monahan says, like, I have like two years until I'm uncastable in anything right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you look at a lot of careers, there's a really limited shelf life. And what I love so much about, you know, Diana's relationship with her mother is is that, you know, I have a good relationship with my mother and I love her. And there were many times in this movie where I just welled up with tears and I I felt kind of, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like I'm seeing my mommy on screen. (laughs) Like it was really moving to me. And I went home and thought about it and I'm like, you know, I don't see that a lot. I don't see a really good relationship between a mother-daughter reflected on screen very often. A lot of times it's very, uh, you know, very con you know a lot of conflict and not to say that we haven't had conflict because i mean you know there is kind of a stereotype about moms and daughters having conflict we definitely do but i mean you know we love our parents and so it- it's nice to see a more positive version of that on screen too
0: yeah and i'll get into my relationship with my mother but we get to aquaman and i'll just be a uh... I'll just be an emotional wreck by the time we get to the oh. third act of that movie. Oh, but
1: <laughs> Yeah, don't worry, I'm not gonna go too deep. Yeah. I mean, just just know that I had some teary moments. <laughs> exactly.
0: And this history lesson that Hippolyta gives Anna and like it's like almost like a like you said, a moving painting. It's like a motion comic. And I love how Zeus created mankind just to be a benevolent uh benevolent uh being, and it's Ares who decides to mess with it, much like Yeah. Uh, Lucifer, he couldn't. Ha- he couldn't have. He couldn't stand the, the humans would get so much uh, fair treatment. And like, why do you get their love? Yada yada yada, and decides Daddy to mess issues with precisely. Right mm-hmm. And so Zeus <laughs> is like, "All right, you want, I know how to calm them. I will. I will create the Amazons. And I like how they are almost like at first depicted like sirens coming out yes, of the water. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's a weird, a different take. I was not expecting there. And then Ares says, fuck it, I'm just going to cause all kinds of havoc, and it takes all the gods to try and kill him, and so before Zeus perishes, he sends down the god-killer weapon in order to protect the Amazons and humanity from uh, Ares, and we think it's a sword. Um, Spoilers, it's not, but we'll get to that later.
1: (laughs) I love that, too, by the way.
0: It, like because you think like, oh, it's a traditional, like, you think of like King Arthur, you think of a Excalibur, like of course it's a weapon. But, yeah, and, yeah. And, but obviously this, that's not how the story's told, and it's not a weapon, it's a person. And so we cut to 1918, Diana's now grown up into a young woman played by Gal Gadot, and we find out that she is one of the best warriors amongst them, even though she does doubt herself, but she there's more than meets the eye when it comes to her powers, when it, like like oh, she's not exactly like every other Amazon, mhm, Yeah, I, I
1: think the the bracelet scene is what, what I think of as our first real hint at that,
0: yeah, and like how it literally knocks everybody off their feet, and Hippolytos is like, what have I done like well, i i've ex- like i exposed her to like what her her true origin is, mhm, mhm-. But at the same time, when Diana goes off to console herself here, was when we see U.S. pilot Captain Steve Trevor crash land in the ocean, and Diana goes to save him before he sinks and drowns, and this is the first time she's meeting a man. But before she has a chance to really take that in, uh, German soldiers invade the the coastline, and a huge battle ensues. How do you feel about this first set piece?
1: I really like it because, I mean, you, you... I've probably we've probably talked about this off air, too, but I like war films a lot. Um, There's quite a few of them that I really enjoy, but there's something really cool about this scene because the juxtaposition of, you know, just the incredibly terrible uh, conditions that they're fighting in in that scene where they're on the ocean. But it's very dreary. It's those dark colors. A lot of the colors that we see in a war movie And then when they cross over to Themyscira, they're in paradise. And I think this is going to set up a theme later in the movie about how, you know, they have really pulled away from the world, lived in paradise, but at the expense of things getting so bad outside of it, um, which I think is a big theme in the film. So I really like that setup. And then, uh, you know, when they go to shore and, you know, Steve Trevor is there and he and... You know, Diana sort of pulls him out of the water and onto the onto the shore. I like all that, and then the battle scene coming up is great. But maybe I'm getting too far ahead. I don't know. I'll stop there.
0: No, no, no. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Um, I, I love Gal's reaction to realizing that she's finally get to see a man in real life.
1: Yeah, yeah. She's like, wow. And and it's not. There's something interesting in this movie about yes, a man specifically, but also a human. I think too. Because they they establish that the Amazons are something different, right? Because they live for a really long time, they're magical. They almost feel like angels and less like people, mm-hmm. even though they look like people. So it's like, whenever she says "man," I think of it as having a double meaning. What about you?
0: Yeah, because like oh, like like you say, like it's it's the sir the sir syllable of human like It's man. Yeah, it's like
1: mankind. Yeah,
0: and she how gala approaches like so much of this entire movie is just through very innocent lenses mm-hmm. and as you yeah, react- she's
1: definitely fish out of water kind of reactions kind of like in thor a lot of people made that comparison
0: right and that's not like the only mcu like people say like oh it's just a ripoff of captain america the first avenger Well, we get to- it's like
1: i hate to break it to you but a lot of these stories are kind of similar <laughs> like you know so they're gonna seem like copies of each other by the nature of comic book movies, but yeah, yeah,
0: go ahead. Yeah. But like, it, it's, it, she shows one of the things that like, it's like why so much of the entire world has fallen in love with her. She like, has like a million dollar smile. Mm-hmm. And like the first yeah. smile she gives to Steve, like, like you could feel like, at least I thought the whole audience just melts. Just like, oh my God. Like, yeah. Like, okay, we'll follow her into battle where she goes because she just seems such a warm presence and she seems so excited to, like, meet a human for the first time. And I love Steve Trevor's very matter-of-fact line delivery. Like, well, yeah. Do I look like one?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you. She's got an aura about her, and it's undeniable. I think everybody feels it. Some people just have an infectious smile and, and a presence, and she has that. And that's something that we don't see a lot in superheroes. So it, it, it's different, and, it, and it's, it's great.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, some people say, like, our superheroes need to be dark and depressed and (laughs) broody the entire time, and there must be no sense of hope or wonder whatsoever. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, because like so many of the filmmakers before her, Patty Jenkins, like, the chief inspiration for this movie was Richard Donnelly's Superman.
1: Right, right.
0: And I think that's the, the best way to approach it. Even, like, there's certain set pieces in it. There's even certain structure to this movie is very similar to Superman the movie.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And And he had that innocence about him and that presence and that warmth that you just felt you know and it helps us i think as an audience because this is you know a godlike being and it it kind of helps us quell our fears about what this person is going to do you know we automatically get on their side and we trust them because they bring that presence and i think it's a good thing that you point that out because i think there's been a lot of um controversy too with you know expecting female characters to be warm i've heard that a lot too i don't know if you've ever Heard that, but they're like, you know, why do women always have to be so nurturing and doting? Like, that's not a real thing. And like, I actually agree that it's not a real thing, but it's not so much that she's female, it's that that particular character is warm um in the same way that Superman is. So I think it's great that you brought that up. And it kind of reminds me, too, a little bit of like why I like The Flash. You know, he's very different from a lot of other superheroes. He's very positive, very family inclusive. Um, and he just brings that really great energy to that character. He's not Arrow, you know. He's not the Green Arrow. So it's like there's room for like different types of superheroes, and and she's just a different type of one.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, into the point where I do this often. I do this earlier today, where I pulled up the scene when we the first time we get to see Superman when he saves Lois from falling out of the helicopter, and it's like. Like I got you, man. Like I got you, got me. Who's got you? And then when he smiles as he leaves, he's like, like statistically, like uh, air travel is the safest way to go, and just, <laughs> it's just like that kind of very light touch to everything is like, all right, yes, superheroes can be like this. They don't have to be brooding all the time. And I like <laughs> that you you brought up the fact that like, oh, it's a nurturing, warm character. There's a quote here that I have from Gal Gadot. <clears throat> When Patty and I had our conversations about the character, we realized Diana can still be a normal woman. One with very high values, but still a woman. She can be sensitive. She is smart and independent and emotional. She can be confused. She can lose her confidence. She can have confidence. She is everything. She has a human heart. It's like you can have a multifaceted character. Like it can't just be one note the entire time.
1: Yeah, I feel like, you know, and there's... Some great stuff out there to break this idea down. But for such a long time, we've been like a a society that's so afraid of emotion, I think, that, you know, showing too much of it is sort of a sign of weakness. And so I'm really drawn to these narratives where emotions are part of who you are and a strength and a positive thing. Um, So I think that 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 makes a lot of sense that they had that conversation like she can get really excited when she sees ice cream or a baby or, you know, whatever, because that doesn't take away from who she is and what she's able to do. People are complicated and they're, like you said, multifaceted
0: yeah I, I mean that's how I react to every time I see ice cream like, that's just my general reaction <laughs> <laughs> yeah no
1: one's like oh you're not acting manly you're too excited about your ice cream like you know no like it's okay to be excited about ice cream, likes ice cream.
0: <laughs> of course um, and so what, with this opening battle here I like how you brought this, this earlier that it is a juxtaposition where you have modern day technology for the time when you have rifles and handguns Versus horseback and arrows and swords and spears,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it, but it is something. It is a sight to behold to see both Kyle Nielsen and Robin Wright ride out as a cavalry charge to right into battle right there. Like I have to admit, like that is really badass.
1: Yeah, and they're very confident that this is going to be a quick battle because. They're trained to do this. They know what to do. And it's only because things have changed so much in the future that they're behind. They're not actually as prepared as they think they are.
0: Yeah. And there are moments in there where I think it's like one of the beats that I really enjoy is when Robin Wright, she gets knocked off her horse and she takes all the arrows out of her quiver and she shoves them into the sand for yeah. easier access. And then she goes like a 360 around. And she takes out as many soldiers around her. And Connie Nielsen does, like, another... Three, she does a 360 when she flies off her horse. And, obviously, I think the moment that there was so many of the trailers are built upon is when Robin Wright jumps off a, a shield lifted off into the air by another Amazonian warrior over a rock to kill three men with three arrows as she flies over them in slow motion.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the every single fight scene is just amazing. It just reminds you why, like... I think a lot of times in movies, we're so used to seeing action with, you know, guns, because that's, you know, modern day, it's like, why would I pick up a bunch of arrows if I have a gun? And, you know, people make jokes about, you know, Hawkeye in in adventures like, what's he doing? Um, But it is such a fun thing to see and watch, like the combat is just so different. And yeah, you you always think like, well, how are they going to make this work? And they make it work so well. It's like if you if you have good choreography and good, you know, uh, shots, it, it works great and is one of the funnest parts of the film. I think
0: definitely. And I know some people were like, oh. You just ripped off Zack Snyder with another slow motion action scene, and I'm just like, come on, people.
1: Ugh. I, I think I, I understand where they're coming from, but I think that there's also a something to be said for being able to see the action um and sometimes slowing it down and showing you every facet of it is necessary, and I think in this particular movie it made a lot of sense to do that. Um, there's no shaky cam and, you know, looking away, we get to see what's happening. And I, and I like seeing that.
0: Yeah, it it is. I, you would almost say people like clarity. They like to know what's going on. Like they know, like they would like to know the geography of what's going on within the scene. And the, the easier you can make it for the audience, the better, I mean, like, I enjoy the Bourne movies as much as anybody else, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't want every action movie to look like that.
1: Right, because sometimes it's like, there have been action movies that I've watched, and when they do an action scene, I'm like, what happened? Like, I kind of know what happened, but it, it, felt, it felt like it happened too quickly. So, I don't know, maybe that's just like my own personal bias, but I, I kind of liked the slow down stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I understand it was a stylistic choice, and Batman Begins to... film it very close and and claustrophobic so you can't tell what's going on. I understand that was a... Sure,
1: yeah, that works for Batman. Yeah. You know? Because I think with Batman, it's like if you see him too much during the day in his whole suit, it can kind of look goofy after a while. (laughs) And so, like, I think keeping him mysterious into the dark helps a lot of times.
0: Yeah. And so during this battle, Antiope is killed and they realize, hey, This guy uh, brought all these people, Steve Trevor brought all these people to our island. So we got to find out who he is. And so with the lasso of truth, they interrogate him to find out what's going on. And then we find out that we're in the midst of World War I. And the reason why Steve Trevor got here is because he had stolen information from Dr. Poison, the chief uh, scientist for the Germans who were trying to create a new super weapon of new kind of foreign mustard gas to kill people and in order to get out of there he blew up the facility and stole a plane which led to the chase here but he has to get back to London. He has to get back all the inform- this information to inform the Allies to try and find a way to stop them but they don't want to let him off. They say like, hey if he leaves, he could potentially leave more people here where Diana thinks hey, this has to be Ares, the god of war. He has to be back to, he's the one most likely could." Can- the, the puppet master behind World War I. And so she decides to go against her mother's wishes and get Steve Trevor off the island and go with him to Man's World. How do you feel about this part of the movie?
1: There's a lot of stuff, I think, to unpack here. I think that uh, these two leads, you know, Diana and Steve Trevor, they're polar opposites in how they view humanity. You know, Steve Trevor's character, and we learn a little more about that later, but he's got this Baggage. I mean, he's living through World War One. So he's literally seeing the worst in humanity right now. Uh, he talks about the war to end all wars. And um, I think also there's a strategic choice. If You want to talk about an agenda. Um, the scene of the poison factories uh Patty Jenkins went out of her way to have a lot of women shown in that scene because I do think that there is some erasure in a lot of uh, war movies. They don't always represent, you know, they focus so much on the soldiers, which makes sense. But at the same time, war affected everybody. So and and women were part of the war efforts in many different ways and in many different areas. And so there are some scenes in this movie where she shows a lot of women, and but it's in a very like subtle way. So that particular scene with the, with that, uh, I think it was like the poison factory. So, you know, this isn't a good thing, but it was showing that there were a lot of women working behind the scenes in in every aspect. So I thought that was kind of interesting too. And then, yeah, she goes against her mother's wishes. And I really love that scene because, you know, she tells her, you know, you were my greatest, um, treasure. Now you're my greatest sorrow and that that's the scene that really got me cuz i'm like i feel that parents really you know they feel that way they love their kids so much and when it's really time to let them go it's very painful to, um and it feels a little bit like a metaphor for just growing up you know being coming out of the nest so to speak
0: yeah and it, it is it's horrifying to see like the kind of the experiments of what dr poison is doing To and just saying like oh oh
1: yeah yeah (laughs) we don't get a lot of background with her ever we don't really learn a ton about her we learn just enough um but yeah that scene with the gas I I remember thinking that that was pretty
0: graphic
1: in this movie (laughs) like it's pretty horrifying
0: yeah I I know like there there is a you could say probably a decent criticism of this movie is that the villains are not the, the most developed people in the world.
1: No, and does it seem sometimes like there's a theme of when the main character is extremely positive and light that sometimes the bad guys do get kind of diminished? Because I feel like this isn't the only movie where this happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, like you think of I'm trying to think of, one of that one-dimensional events. Like, go back to Thor: The Dark World, which like has probably the the most one-dimensional of all Marvel villains of Malekith, the evil elf.
1: Gosh, um, I forgot about him.
0: <laughs> goes to show how much impact he's had on comic books right there. <clears throat>
1: yeah, I think sometimes the story's focus is not really on that conflict. And so so that that's the only thing that I kind of feel about this movie that I think in some ways gets unfair criticism is that I don't think that the bad guy is a physical thing in this movie. And that's why the villains I think take such a back seat like I understand why people don't like them but I think that the scope of what she's fighting against isn't really these doctor poison or the alt and bad guy
0: yeah because we also have a uh, general Ludendorff. Ludendorff and out of two of them are like a one two punch where he wants to knows that Germany's on the back foot and on the verge of Losing this war, but he's he's going to go down to the last man, and he's going to use any means necessary to win it, including you could say unscrupulous uh, methods via doctor poison, right? And it is it is it is a sad moment when you mentioned before where Hippolyta says like you're my greatest sorrow because like oh it's it's like her first time experiencing like like almost the very beginning of like empty nest. Um, I don't want to say syndrome, but like the kind of feelings of that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she's really having to let her go and be her own person. And this is a clue, right? We should be starting to pick up on the God Killer stuff here, but maybe we haven't yet. But she did basically reveal that she kind of shielded Diana from some things about her origins, about who she is, about who Ares is. And it was to protect her, and we get that because she's a mom. But that's going to become even more complicated as the story goes on.
0: Yeah, and I love when when they first when they first had the first like one on one meeting between well the second one on one meeting in like the I guess the room of healing, and like Steve Trevor's in the pool and he's just, like kind of like <laughs> yeah, it's a great why, scene. like why is everything bioluminescent like and everything and like. And he makes the joke like, or Gal asked, Diana asks, like, are you an average specimen of you people? I'm like, well, I'm above average and everything. <laughs> he's obviously just going to just brush uh, dust off his shoulder while he's at it. And which leads into another scene later on. But I love when Gal, or I keep going like Gal Gadot, but when Diana goes to get the Killer sword and her outfit, we don't see the outfit.
1: You're right. That's a big reveal later in a great scene.
0: And I think it's a really smart choice there because like, of course, we've seen most people had seen BVS at this point and we've seen the trailers, but it's smart filmmaking on Patty Jenkins' part to we're going to hold back on it. Like we're going to hint at it, but we're not going to show it until it's just the right moment right there doing the Superman principle there.
1: Yeah, we get the sense that she's becoming Wonder Woman. She's not there yet. So it makes sense to hold off on showing that uniform.
0: Yeah. And so Diana and Hippolyta have a very tearful goodbye. And they set out sailing away from Themyscira, knowing that Diana may never be able to return.
1: Right. Yeah, they established that, that it's possible she might not be able to come back. And also, we start getting hints of, you know, uh, Steve Trevor is going to start sort of letting Diana believe what she wants, bending the truth a little bit, whatever he has to do to get back to, to London.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I love the point where it's like, Steve Trevor, you promised me, and like you you made a promise to me, and promises can never be broken right there. And Steve's like, uh, I don't want to do this, but I have to. I guess I'll continue to lie to you.
1: Yeah, he's, he's thinking about the greater good. And again, I think that it's, another kind of theme in this movie her big thing at this point is you know direct simple truth and her arc is learning that it's more complicated than that you know
0: yeah and i love how it's further explored in a very comedic sense where we have like the 20 questions about humanity on the boat ride away from (laughs) them skira
1: i like a lot of that stuff and even back when she was at the pool and she was like you let that little thing tell you what to do um with the watch um, and you know he explains to her sort of like the concept of time and a lot of people have criticized this because they're like if they they are so educated they would know what time is but I don't think it's necessarily that they don't they can't know what it is it's that th- it has no meaning for them because when they were in the mascara, they were basically immortal and so why were they worried about time that was just not a concept that disrupts their day-to-day life and so it's not something they explore or think about a lot Um, but that's another part of her character growth by the end is understanding the way that time affects humanity and how, you know, it's, it's ironic that in that moment, she says, you let that little thing tell you what to do because of what ultimately the way it's used later.
0: Yeah. And that I, I, you argue they probably have what at most sundials,
1: Yeah, it's like, I mean, and they just don't need them. Because what does one day mean to the next to them? I mean, it just doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, when like... It it just
1: matters for humans.
0: Right, when hundreds of years can fly by in an instant for them. Yeah. And of course, when like, he doesn't want to lay down next to her. It's like, well, you don't want to sleep with me? Like, I'll sleep with you. I'll sleep next to you if if that's what you want to do. And like the, his awkwardness of trying to be proper in front of her. And she's just being very, like, just like... Just kind of, like you said, very straightforward of Like, the social norms of the time coming up against a very straightforward, no-nonsense kind of thinking is, I think it's comedic gold.
1: Yeah, I do, too. It's She's basically like, so the sex thing's really tripping you up, huh? Well... You don't need to worry about that. Because <laughs> it's like he sort of has this attitude of like, because she's fish out of water, she's so innocent. She must not know the way men think or, you know, that kind of stuff. And then she kind of just blows that out of the water. And then even kind of makes him feel a little bit bad when she's like, he was like, well, what do you do on that planet or on that, you know, uh, island with all those women? And how do y'all da da? da? And she's like, turns out we don't need you, actually. And that's kind of another comedic part that's kind of funny.
0: Yeah, because it's just a like, little
1: bit of a jab at like f- the way female pleasure is sort of p- portrayed on screen. And I-, I can't help but feel like Patty Jenkins just snuck that in there like, hey, by the way, we- we'd be good, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, al- al- unless, like, funny.
0: unless like procreation, like they don't need to procreate, so they don't really need men and yeah. so, and, <laughs> but I love how he he, he like he doesn't get too defensive. He's like he's like, oh no no, you're like you're missing out. Like he's trying to defend like the <laughs> he's like potential I've got coitus. So much to
1: offer. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's funny because they're at the beginning of like their connection, which you know deepens a lot more later.
0: Right, and, and I love the line delivery when he asks her like, all right, like who's your father? Then he's like I, I didn't have a father. My mother construct my father was Zeus. He my mother constructed me out of clay and. Both the Lightning made me. And there's a beat. Well, that's neat.
1: Yeah, he's kind (laughs) of like... Again, he he has this perception of her, and he's right, that she doesn't have all the information. Uh, Like, you can kind of sense in that moment that he's like, okay, her mom told her that. But there's another story here, and it's a theme of, like, her mom kind of not giving her all the info she needs. Um, She'll get that as it goes on. Again, to try to protect her.
0: Yeah, it's like... It's like she didn't have the talk with her daughter. <laughs> no. I mean, even though, like, yeah, she's fully an expert in the pledges of the Flesh, as they put it, but, like, the kind of, like, oh. But her
1: own origins she's not, like, keen on. She doesn't really know.
0: No. And so they arrive in London, and Diana, like, Steve has to go to, before the Supreme War Council, to kind of, like, hey, this is the information we have. Where Diana is like her eyes are the size of saucers, trying to take everything in. Like, what are cars? Why are people holding hands? Ooh, a baby! And, yeah. and, and Steve's like, oh come on, like just like well, like wants to hold her like by the shoulders. Like, nope, we're gonna have to go this way and like direct her. But Diana wants to just experience the entire world in a moment when she's just so enraptured by um, early uh, nineteenth, twentieth century London.
1: Yeah, and of course the time that she's in it's abnormal for a woman to be moving around like that on her own, wearing what she's wearing, doing what she's doing. So it's sort of like a kind of tongue in cheek commentary on that to you a little bit.
0: Right. I mean, cause they even like, there's a, you can see like posters of like, uh, people demanding like woman suffrage and like, they want to have the chance to vote. Like Eddie, can, uh, was it, um, uh, What's her character's name? Why I told her. Uh, uh, Can- is
1: it Etta Candy? Yeah.
0: Etta Candy. Like, saying, oh, we want to vote someday, and this is why, this is the things we have to do in order to get that, and you just yeah. wonder, <laughs> it's something that's so foreign to Diana's nature.
1: Yeah, she's like, that's dumb, and, the, like, also their clothes she finds too restricting, and, like, yeah, there's a lot of little kind of funny moments with that.
0: Right, and I love when they have to take her to get clothes because she's still wearing her, her armor. And like, no, we need to put you into something to be able to navigate through polite society.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I like the addition of the glasses after she gets that dress, too, because that's sort of, you know, again, a nod to Superman a little bit.
0: Right. And, and I love how Eddie Candy underlines it, like, really? Specs? That's going to deter you from the fact that she's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen?
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, it comments on a, a on a little bit of a trope in movies too, where women like you know take the glasses off, and it's like, oh, I I didn't realize how pretty they were. Now they now they're not wearing glasses. Right. It's like, mm, no.
0: Yeah, like it, women in glasses are just as beautiful without wearing glasses, right there. So I don't know yeah. why people have that issue.
1: <laughs> She's all that. Maybe I don't know.
0: <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> um, but I, I even love the joke there with like. Diana's looking at a corset, and it's like, oh, it's supposed to help keep your tummies in. Like, And Diana asks, why would you keep your tummy in? And Eddie Candy very snidely re- remarks, says somebody would never have to try and keep their tummy in. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that part.
0: Oh, I, I absolutely adore this. And it must have been so much fun for all those involved to find out, okay, what outfit is she going to try on?
1: Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, how do you make it, you know, how do you get her look to work for her. Cause when she's in some of the other dresses, it just doesn't feel right. And then when she puts that last like sort of suit on that feels right. And again, kind of vaguely reminds you of Superman a little bit.
0: Right. Because the Superman moments don't end there because they find out That's ap- right. they're being followed and they get caught into an alley and a gun is pulled on them. And we have, oh, and,
1: and the revolving door scene too.
0: Oh. oh, I didn't even think of it like that. Wow. <laughs> And so, is that... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no after you.
1: Oh, yeah. She, when she has that moment where she's having trouble with the revolving door, that's a direct reference uh, to Superman as well. And I just love how she goes, let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> when he tries to, like, help her. And it's funny because... It's funny for a couple reasons, but one of them is just that, you know, she doesn't truly comprehend it, but it kind of shows her nature of, like... Even if she doesn't know something, that's not something that bothers her. Like learning something new, you know, understanding how things work, that's that's like fun for her. So she gets to live in this uh, world where she's not intimidated by not knowing something. And I, I kind of like that about her character.
0: Right. And, I, and I'm glad they didn't do the gag where she gets into the revolving door but can't get out. And she keeps going yeah. in circles. Like I think that would have been a little <laughs> too silly.
1: Two, two on the nose, yeah, because even though this is a positive film, it, it's still not quite as lighthearted as Superman, so yeah, I think you're right, it kind of has to stay in that in-between.
0: Right, and so before they go off to the War Council, um, Diana has to give up the sword and shield to Edda Candy, and he <laughs> makes Edda promise her to defend them with their life, and Edda's like, okay,
1: alright, this this is sort of a, a almost like Thor moment, right? Where there's some comedy with somebody that's from a time that's a, a little bit more dramatic.
0: <laughs> Definitely. And I love how, again, he's like, all right. She she has it for a moment, but then she's holding both of them, the sword and the shield. It's like, all right, these are a lot heavier than I expected. And, she's, <laughs> and she kind of looks around like, help, help. I, I can't lift this. this is... But I love how she, recon- she even sees the signs of they're being followed right away.
1: Right, right, right. She picks on it quickly.
0: Which leads to the the alley fight, which is almost beat for beat, like a rip, ripping from Superman the movie, right there.
1: Absolutely. Yep. It, it, it's a wonderful scene because, again, we're kind of slowly getting introduced to her powers as well, what her bracelets can do, what she can do. And so this is kind of another moment where, like, oh, they're bulletproof.
0: Right. And I love the like I have so many trailers with Constructor on this, where Steve holds her back, like, doesn't want her to get hurt the bad guy fires and she and Diana is the one who deflects the bullet and Steve's like, well, maybe not. And then Diana's the one who takes out most of them and Steve just has to have, who lays a haymaker into one of the dudes' faces.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I'm just like, oh, it's just a it's, it's something I, I get jazz for every time. I'm like, oh, there's the alley scene right here.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I, I agree with you. I love that scene.
0: And so they finally get to the War Council where it's just uh bunch of old dudes arguing, which right? is a lot of rebel, <laughs> rebel, rebel, rebel-rousing. And Sir Patrick uh, Morgan, played by David Thuelis, or David Thuelis, depending on your pronunciation, who's trying to negotiate an armistice, and the whole council comes to a screeching halt when Diana walks in, and everybody's like, oh woman?
1: They're like, how dare she? Yeah. And it's, again, another moment of where she kind of gets to soapbox after talking to them um, about how it doesn't make sense that these guys decide the fate of everybody else. They're not on the front lines. They're not you know, affected by these decisions the way everyone else is. And and she comments on that. She's learning, you know, firsthand the injustices of that time and possibly still this time. But, yeah, so it's a pretty cool scene for a couple of reasons. And always enjoy Thulis. When I saw him, I was like, oh, Remus Lupin.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because he improves every movie he's in no matter what.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, something shady's going on
0: oh for sure <laughs> um I'm trying to think there's I think of one movie it was where he played like, a really like spoiled prince I'm I'm trying to remember what the hell it was this was, like in the early 90s the only reason I remember that because he had like like ear like like blondish red hair and I'm like
1: was wow. it uh Kingdom of Heaven
0: was he uh, was he in Kingdom of Heaven yeah I'm
1: looking at his IMDB
0: no I think he was I think it was earlier than that oh okay okay but regar- yeah, that was
1: two thousand five, so I guess that was after Harry Potter and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know.
0: But regardless, he's just like he's just one of those actors like he always delivers no matter what yes. he's in. Um very similar to another uh, contemporary of his like Mark Strong. Whenever he shows up, like, oh I've already I sit forward lean forward, like, okay, I don't sure, care what yeah. you're doing, I'm he I'm here for it. Yes. And that's when they realize, like, oh, you can't do this, yada yada yada. And Diana, like you said, reams them out for it, like being miles upon miles away from the battle, and you don't really, you shouldn't have a, a voice in sending people to their death. And Steve Trevor pulls her out of there after saying, like, yeah, we'll do nothing. And that's when Diana starts to chastise him for not standing up to his superiors. He's like, I lied to them. And she's, she's like,
1: like, you lied. He's
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, of course I'm a spy. How do I know you're not lying now? And he wraps the lasso of truth around his wrist and says, We're going to the front. We're all gonna die. This is a terrible idea. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, this is sort of challenging her worldview because she comes from Themyscira. They have this lasso of truth. That's a big pillar for her, telling the truth. And in this movie, she's going to learn that, you know, that can be complicated and that it's not so black and white. You know, if someone's not telling the truth, they're bad. That's going to be a theme throughout the movie, I think, of her realizing that there's nuances to everything.
0: Yeah, it is realizing that the world is not simply black and white. It's just shades of gray, unfortunately.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: But they can't do it alone. They gotta have some people there with them. And so we end up going to a pub to recruit the Moroccan spy Shamir. Uh, Samir, excuse me, and the Scottish uh, marksman named Charlie. And I love how they don't really don't take Diana seriously like everybody else until Yeah <laughs> until they <laughs> she she stops Charlie from being executed by another bar patron. And Samir's uh, line that they became like a rallying cry for so many people after seeing this movie when it comes to Diana. Like, I am both frightened and aroused. It, it is, <laughs> yeah. It's a nice button to the scene right there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like the team that they put together. That's I think that's one of the underrated parts of the film.
0: Right, and then we have, oh, what was it? Um, uh, Ewan Bremmer, who plays Charlie, who... Most people recognize from Train Spotting.
1: Yep, yep.
0: And I'm just—I was disappointed here where he doesn't say like for pleasure or, for other people's pleasure, and because <laughs> I, I absolutely adore him in Train Spotting.
1: Oh yeah, he's great in that movie.
0: Um, and so and then of course they beat up with uh, a little later on Chief Nappy, the Native American smuggler. Mm-hmm. But before that, we have the moment from the comics. I think this is from the New Fifty Two where. Diana says, It's just ice cream. And I love that little moment of humanity there where she thinks this man invented ice cream.
1: Yeah, she's like, You should be very proud of this.
0: <laughs> just, she's not wrong. No, I think that's what we should say to all ice cream makers, if, especially yes, if it's like. Be it. proud.
1: <laughs> it's delicious.
0: Um, but then this is when she first starts to see the atrocities of the war when she sees the wounded coming back from the front.
1: Yeah, I think this is where some of the reality is starting to set in. Um uh, because I th- I think she's so one-note here, right? She really wants to get to Aries and stop him, but she hasn't actually seen the atrocities that Steve talks about until this point. So that's when it sort of starts to take a different meaning on for her, I think.
0: Yeah, and, and I do enjoy the fact where like she we have this kind of high moment like, "Oh, we're going on an adventure." Until the reality sets in which he literally right. he crosses a threshold by crossing that bridge
1: yeah. to head well, into Well she's this. got that thing too where like you know there's, she's like the young warrior like I can't wait to do battle until you're actually in it and then you're like oh this is bad. <laughs> so yeah.
0: Right. You think of like the lofty ideas of what battle can mean for you and like I think of All Quiet on the Western Front where yeah. where they show like the very beginning of the movie it's like all oh, the propaganda to get the the young boys to go to the front, where they're all like, I can't wait to go to the front. I can't wait to join the battle. Until we follow soldiers going through hell on earth. And by right. the end of the movie, we see one soldier go back to his old school where he was recruited and seeing the exact same thing happening to a new batch of kids.
1: Right, right. Yeah, definitely comment- commenting on that for sure.
0: Definitely. And I do enjoy the moment here where Diana is talking to the chief and, like, saying, like, why do you do this? And it's like, well, I don't have a home anymore. It was taken away by Steve's people. And just the the multifaceted nature of humanity where it's far more complicated than Diana could have possibly imagined.
1: Right, because I think up until this point she thought, oh, there's a good side and a bad side to the war, which, I mean, generally in history we think that. But, I mean, the reality is that, yeah, it's like, okay, in this sense, sure, there's a good side and a bad side. But what about, you know, what happened with, you know, Native American people, we were the bad side in that instance. And what about in this other instance? And what about in this other one? It's like, wow, there isn't just one good side. You know, it's subjective. Um, And, and humanity is complicated and constantly at war. I think maybe she thought that, World War One was like, oh, this is like a new bad thing that's happening, and now she's realizing, oh man, you guys actually uh, fight a lot. There's a lot of fighting,
0: right? And you think of like historical context of it because, like, you think of like the the previous big conflict before this was like the Crimean War, where a lot of the war was fought with a uh, stole a lot of people on horseback, yeah, and charges and everything. And you think of like the very first battles of World War One, a lot of people were outside of germany were kind of fit, fitted with like old uniforms and like oh this is going to be we're going to be very proud and we're going, to do, we're going to charge at each other bayonet charges and we're going to stand in line and shoot at each other and this is the very first mechanized war to change the the wars that would go forward
1: yeah and i think also world war one you know the way it starts feels very much like that scene with all the guys arguing in the <laughs> in that scene we saw earlier in this movie, of like you know, dominoes fell into place and something happens, and suddenly we're at war. It, it doesn't feel as cut and dry as you think it would. Like World War One didn't start, you know, the same way World War Two did.
0: No, and like when you think about, it, like yeah, it was it was a powder keg that was eventually happened between. It right, was a bunch it of- was
1: going to happen, but it's also like what actually tips the scales is like really, you know. France Ferdinand and okay.
0: Yeah, it was literally just one act of violence that really set off yeah. a four war, four year long conflict.
1: Right. It feels like why why? But yeah, I mean that's how all war is, I guess so. But I think, you know, that earlier scene was sort of commenting on that.
0: Right. And then there's the podcast, uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History where he did like a six part series on World War One and each episode's like four and a half to five hours in length. Where it was oh, wow. yeah, it's very deep dive, and it's talking about how the ways that World War I played out played out the rest of the twenty first century when it comes to conflict, where there would be like, oh, after World War One, yeah Germany was left in shambles and it opened their eyes in debt, which led to the rise of Nazism and the yeah. the conflict of World War two, but also the revolution that happened in Russia during World War One, which led to the rise of communism in there and how that influenced conflicts going forward. And I was just curious like all that started with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. It's like wow. Right. Yeah, it's like
1: really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think and I think too that's why a lot of times people don't cover World War 1 as much. Like we we really romanticized and loved to revisit World War II, but I feel like World War 1 doesn't get enough coverage, you know?
0: Right, because I think it's it was a conflict that was compared to World War I, I mean, World War II, one seemed like a very unnecessary conflict.
1: Yeah, and it's like, when you really think about it, they're all unnecessary, so... And, and I just kind of like that they chose this. I know they did it mainly because of Captain America, but I also just like that they chose it because I think it kind of goes with the theme of the movie of things being a little bit more complex than they look, you know?
0: Right, and, like, without World War One, we wouldn't have Lord of the Rings the way we know it because of Tolkien's right, experience right. during it. Mhm. Uh Being on the front, and speaking of the front, that's when... Diana and crew make it to Belgium, where Diana comes face to face with the atrocities that are happening in in the trenches, where she's seeing so much kind of terrible things going on. and She's like, "We got to stop and help them." And the entire crew's like, "Nope, we can't help them. We got to keep pushing forward. We can't do this. We there's no way we can we can help all these people here." And Diana is like, "She can only stand so much. She can't stand some more," and decides to. <laughs> Take a, a charge across no man's land.
1: Yes, and this is like when we finally see her suit. Right? And, you know, we um it's just such a powerful scene. I, I think this is another part I think where I was in tears. I just I thought it was so beautiful because, you know, If anybody has taken any history class, you've heard a lot about the trenches. Again, I think another reason why we don't see a lot of movies about this time, because it's definitely not the type of combat that is, you know, fun to watch, right? I mean, it it was so terrible and just so awful and went on for so long and cost so many lives and is so tedious and sad. And so this moment where she, you know, takes off that jacket and we see her whole costume and then she says you know it's what i'm going to do and she's able to end that conflict right in that moment it just feels like such a wonderful fantasy of like you know what if that didn't have to go on for so long and i think a lot of people felt that in that
0: moment right and there are set pieces and moments in in terms of comic book movies that define a character yeah like you think of like in Superman the movie when he saves the helicopter and saves Lois' life or in Batman 89 in the very beginning when he descends down onto that rooftop and scares the shit out of those two goons mm-hmm. or it's Iron Man where you get to see the first Iron Man suit walk out of that cave and take out the guys that were holding him hostage and then with this one it, it goes in that same tradition where it's like okay there's probably going to be another Wonder Woman movie in the near future or not in the near future but like Years of life, there's going to probably be another adaptation of it. However, this version is defined in our minds and our hearts by this set piece here because Patty Jenkins makes it a moment. She takes her time, but we see the jacket come off. We see the tiara go on, and we see people react to her outfit first before we get to fully see it. And we see her slowly climb the ladder, and then the full head-to-toe reveal when she's in No Man's Land. Her colors actually, she literally pops from the background.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it. It just feels so hopeful and so wonderful. And again, I think, in a lot of movies like this, uh, war I think is shown a little bit more. Um, it, it's more romanticized. Combat is, and in this movie, it really isn't. And so this part where she just goes in and ends it, it's just wonderful. It's just such a such a great scene.
0: Yeah, and like how everybody in the audience is just like how just react like how everybody else in the trenches. Like, what are you doing? Don't do that. You're going to get yourself killed.
1: Yeah, it seemed like such an impossible, you know, horrible situation. I remember as a kid reading about it and just being so horrified by that concept. And so it's just such a nice scene.
0: Yeah, and like that, she's able to deflect so many bullets and then when she's able to take the brunt of the machine gun turrets, that's when it allows other soldiers to be able to get her back and able to defend her and then they're Mm -hmm. able to take the trenches and just and she's not going to stop there she's like no 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 there's a town that's under occupation she's going to liberate that if she has to do it by herself and we've heard the wonder woman theme in bvs but this is when we finally get to hear it again as a reprise in this movie and it's it's such a fist-pumping moment when she charges into that one building surrounded by uh soldiers and then just proceeds to take him out one at a time.
1: Yes. And, and also when she reuses, uh, Hippolyta's move in the scene too, with the shield thing. Right. Yeah. It was I it, like that part too. Was it Hippolyta
0: or an Antiope?
1: Oh, maybe, maybe it was Antiope. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, You're right.
0: Yeah. It, and because I love that moment because it's such a perfect button to that scene there where she literally takes down the tower to stop that sniper. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and and it's um, exploring this idea that she has in this scene and this other scene. You know, Steve Trevor told her, we can't concentrate on this. We can't save everybody. And she's like, um, no. And later she's going to have to learn a lesson that he's kind of right about that, right? But in this scene, we're getting to see these wonderful acts of, you know, heroism, and they're super fun to watch. Um, And yeah, this is another probably favorite scene for me.
0: Yeah, I mean it is like it is jaw dropping from beginning to end, and it's something that I think it's a little bit. There is a a failing on the movie's part because we set up in this scene here that Charlie has sometimes a little bit of an issue being effective soldier. Trigger, yeah. And I think it's not it's set up here, but I don't think it's paid off. Hmm, yeah. We, because I, I loved it in the third act when she's like. Under an attack from Ares, and like at one point, like Ares has the upper hand, and all of a sudden he gets shot by something. It doesn't do anything; it just stops him. I would love to see it was Charlie that stops him. Like, oh, he he's able to pull the trigger. And he's able to be effective soldier. I think that's that's the one failing I have with this movie. One of the failings I have with the movie is like, oh, that's just it's a missed opportunity. Right? That's that's the writer in me. I realize that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's because his payoff is supposed to be later with, in the singing scene
0: which I did realize that last time, last night.
1: Yeah, because he, he, I think he's supposed to learn how to move on from that, I think, like away from the soldier thing and and realize that he has value beyond it. Because I think, you know, you touched on the fact that he he has a lot of shame, uh, especially back then, you know, I think they called it shell shock, but it certainly wasn't something that they acknowledged PTSD, right? Like it was shameful, it was embarrassing, it means you're a coward, and he's got the weight of that and he can't bring himself essentially to take another life which is kind of a good thing, right? Like, he's having trouble doing that. And I think she wants him to grow and move past that and so that later scene when she's like, who would sing for us? And he's able to sing and find joy again. I think I think that's supposed to be kind of his turning
0: point. Now that you say it like that, that makes a lot more sense.
1: <laughs> I think... I think, I mean, that's a theory, but it is true that it would be satisfying to see him finally pull the trigger, too. I think it just depends on how you look at, you know, where he's at.
0: Right. And I mean, it's subjective. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, it is like to see Diana go ham on these dudes and throwing tanks around and <laughs> yeah. and seeing her fight back-to-back with Steve Trevor, it's just like, it is an awe-inspiring moment
1: yeah i think again slowly sort of introducing how much strength that she actually has um i think that's always a good idea in in a movie because it's kind of like it helps set the stakes and it helps us understand you know the world that she's in but i always think it's a good idea to kind of do that slowly so you know it doesn't open up with her throwing tanks and stuff and i kind of like that
0: right we slowly build up to just how powerful she is and then afterwards, once they have saved the entire village, we get to my favorite scene in the movie where it's it's later on at night in the village and they're all the residents are celebrating the fact they have been liberated and they decide to dance. And Steve shows Diana how to sway a little bit in their, their modern day dancing.
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot of criticism on this movie that the movie slows down to a halt here. And I completely disagree. I think this is a really important moment in the movie because, you know, a lot of this is setting up Diana to make a really difficult decision in the end, I think. And that's, you know, does humanity deserve to live on? So she's kind of got to see a lot of different facets of humanity in this movie in order for that moment to pay off. So I think when she meets this little band of you know, misfits and learning about them and, you know, at first thinking they're thieves, but then learning that they're more nuanced than that and really getting to know them, thinking that Steve Trevor's a liar, but learning that he's more nuanced than that. And then seeing such an ugly side of humanity, but then having this moment where he sees everybody singing and dancing and what her good works lead to when she saves people, you know, there is a good side to them. There is love there. And so she needs to see these moments because later she's going to have to make that like difficult decision, I think.
0: Right. And and with this scene, it's my favorite moment in movies in 2017 when she sees snow for the first time.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like and it's like in the midst of everything bad, there's good things. And I think, you know, again, that's supposed to kind of be a metaphor for humanity. Like, yes, there's a lot of bad sides to us. But there's a lot of good and wonderful things in the world too.
0: Exactly, and so they decide to call it a night, and Steve like shows Anne to her room, and they they exchange looks, and Steve's about to leave, but then stops, and then closes the door while while he's still in there. They finally kiss, and then we just very very subtly, and it's kind of we just cuts the outside of the of the hotel that they're staying in. And so they finally consummated their relationship, that she finally had a real physical connection with a a human for the first time.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, it was all kind of leading to that moment. And I like, too, that, like, I like that moment, but I like that that's not the only human connection she makes. She also makes some through, you know, the other characters and through saving this village. Like, that's all part of her seeing what it's like to be a person.
0: Right, and it's not just... It yeah. wasn't just one man that defined her entire view of humanity.
1: Right, because, yeah, if if she saves all of humanity because she just likes Steve Trevor, I feel like we would kind of be like, really? You know, <laughs> like... So it's kind of nice that they give her a little bit more depth than that. And him.
0: Yeah. And earlier they had... They actually struck a pose for the photo, which we is the, the genesis of this entire story. Right. Um, and I always had the theory that that was actually, like... Lex Luthor, like, great grandfather, that took the photo, and that's the reason why he had the photo in his possession.
1: Ooh, I like that.
0: I, I think it was my second viewing. I'm just like, wait, what if this Luther family that took the photo, and that's why he has it? And then, like, I had, like, I stopped for a second, and it just, like, I thought I saw the universe crack open in my mind. I'm like, of course, I finally saw the, the, the reason why he had it. And I felt so proud, and I looked around <laughs> the theater, and everybody else was just watching the movie, and I'm like, Right, I should just shut up and watch the movie. <laughs> um, and so they realize that Doctor Poison and Loon are out the German High companion Gala the following day, and they decide to go undercover. Well, Steve is; he doesn't want Diana to, but she just has her own plans. And she, I think she, I think she mugged that lady for her dress. Um,
1: yep, she just looked her up and down, like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs>
0: And I love the fact that when, when we actually see them at the party, everybody is kind of like in beige and browns, and she's yeah. the only one in bright blue.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's and it's a beautiful dress. I love
0: it. It, it is, like, very flowing and everything, and so it's – and she has her sword in her back because like, you think, like, oh, it's just part of her dress. Like, no, she's got a weapon on her, and it looks badass.
1: yeah. And this is where we have a scene between Dr. Poison and Steve Trevor where he's kind of trying to charm her um, into telling more secrets. And she kind of falls for it at first. I think it's a hint that Dr. Poison is pretty lonely and seeking of approval. Um, we don't know why or much about that. But ultimately, she sees through him and her you know her biggest uh, loyalty is to Ludendorff at the end.
0: Right, because you imagine because of her... I assume because of her scarring and the face mask that she wears... Right, yeah. It probably puts off a lot of people.
1: <laughs> yeah, so she's lonely. But that doesn't stop her from being extremely evil. But, you know, I guess we're supposed to feel a little bit of sympathy for her for that.
0: Right. I mean, like, yeah. she, there's moments of humanity in there which pays off at the end. But that's when Diana is, like, she's about to kill Lundorf. That's when Lundorf, like, grabs a hold of her and they start to dance and... Was it the actor? I think it's Danny. Danny Houston. Danny Houston. And I just love how he's like smushtash twirling evil in this. Yes,
1: very. Yeah, and and he's in his character Ludendorff is a real person, a real figure in World War One.
0: Yes, he was yeah. a very like, famous uh, German general that was like one of the forefronts of like their first uh, attack o- into Belgium, and mm-hmm. I think the famous story is that like a village that they had surrounded, but hadn't taken it. He walked up to the the big giant church and on with his sword, he knocked on the church doors. It's like, all right, we have you surrounded. So you might as well just come out now. And they were like, all right, even though we could kill the general and probably dismantle their army right here. But you know what? I think we should probably surrender. And eventually Ludendorff had like a nervous breakdown later on for the war because a lot of people did. Um, it is curious to see him. Like he is, they paint him off the bees, the red herring, thinking that he is, he has to be Ares.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, we're meant to think you know he's the big bad, and then the secondary big bad is is Doctor Poison.
0: Exactly, and but that's when Diana has her chance to kill him, but Steve Trevor stops her.
1: Mm-hmm. He's like, "This is not the right time," because this is all a big distraction from what he's actually doing.
0: Right, and because while that was going on, they set up the, the they fire onto the, the village they just saved with the new poison that was just created, and it does end up killing everybody in the town.
1: yeah, and again, it's it's a moment, a character growth moment for Wonder Woman to realize she can't just fight everyone off to save them, that you know there's a lot of nuance and complexity that she doesn't yet understand about humanity and how they fight.
0: Right, and then she turns to Steve Trevor after witnessing the destruction,'s like, "I could have prevented this if you just let me and and she's like she's blamed Steve for all these deaths here and decides to go off to kill Lundorf once and for all, and she finally catches up with him at an army base where they're fi- they're filling um new planes with all these poisons, and that's when Diana finally goes toe to toe with Lundorf, now who's been juicing with these kind of weird form of steroids and they finally have a a fisticuffs
1: (laughs) yeah and again sort of still keeping going the narrative that he's the big bad guy um and yeah that's the the point or the uh enhancers that dr poison made for him right like she makes him these little she's like oh these are gonna make you really strong for like a little bit so he can like fight Wonder Woman in the scene, but ultimately she defeats him. And while she's doing that, she doesn't realize it, but Steve Trevor is trying to tell her about something bigger than Ludendorff, um, but she can't hear him, doesn't listen to him, and so she misses something, you know, that's going to happen in, in a little bit, but instead she all her focus is on Ludendorff and fighting him.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the first, like, kind of like how in World War Two where Nazis were on amphetamines, and that's how the Blitzkrieg was kind of right. run on by, like, <laughs> oh, we're just going to be drugged as the gills, and we're like, we we can go for days without sleeping, yada, yada, yada.
1: Oh, and the Steve Trevor thing, I think, doesn't happen until the next part. Sorry, I think I misspoke with
0: that. Oh, it's fine, yeah. I mean, I podcast with Jamie Drewley. We jump around all the time when it comes to storylines <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, But no, like, he tries to, like, after Diana kills Lundorf, that's when... Everybody should stop. Ares is destroyed, but that's when everybody's still going about their business, and the war effort still continues. And that's when Steve comes, tells the truth—the fact, like maybe Ares isn't behind this. Maybe it's just this is just humanity how they are.
1: Right, and again, this is all setting her up to have to decide: like, is that true or not?
0: Right, like, is humanity just by nature? destructive or not
1: yeah should she just go back to Themyscira and be like peace out like they did a long time ago
0: right and when she's contemplating this this is when Sir Patrick uh, Morgan shows up again but it's not him it's actually Ares
1: yeah and this is the you know the third act of the film and the biggest problem that most people have with it right right
0: which I I don't have a problem with this third act what about you
1: I think I can understand why this last battle doesn't feel satisfying and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Patty Jenkins didn't want to put this last battle in. She didn't see a need for it. I think that focusing too much on the bad guys of this movie doesn't really make sense because ultimately Ares, Dr. Poison, and Ludendorff are not even the bad guy here. The bad guy is deciding if humanity should continue or not. And there's no one person that can truly represent that. I think it's just a concept that she wrestles with, and that's the main conflict of the film. And that's why this last fight doesn't feel as satisfying, even though he definitely tries to touch on a lot of that stuff, Ares, and explain that while they're fighting. But it just, it's almost like it didn't really need this last fight. What do you think?
0: I I mean, I understand the... I guess the obligatory nature to have uh, punch him out for the third act of a superhero movie.
1: Right. Like, I feel like the studios were like, people want to see this. And I think that's true. And I think that's why people were like, we didn't like this part. Because it, it really doesn't pay off um, at all. Because we meet him so late in the game, um, even though he's been there in the background. But we didn't really like get to know him the whole movie, so... It feels kind of out of nowhere. But again, I think that's because originally he was not part of that plan.
0: Right. And the fact that it's all shot on a big green screen set. So it looks it, it looks jarring visual effects wise.
1: Yeah, it's different from the rest of the film pretty much.
0: Right. And like I, I do like the added effects here where all of Ares' weapons, like his swords and everything, are actually taken from the metal that were going to be used for weapons. So like he's literally using weapons to make a weapon. And he throws grenades at her and like he uses weapons of destruction to try and stop her. And and she tries to use her her weapons her I guess pure weapons to try and stop him in her way. Um I do I think one of the biggest things that makes it like it just seems very jarring in a filmmaking way is because they're so powerful. and They're throwing cars and tanks around like they're nothing. Like, has, <laughs> yeah. There's no... Nothing has mass to them. And the human body, the human brain is so yeah, intuitive. It's hard to tell the
1: stakes, it. right? Like, they don't have, like, a big weakness or something that kind of lets us know when this is going to end.
0: Right. I mean, there's a yeah. wrestling manager where he, he describes, like, oh, you have two giant men like two seven foot guys fighting in a wrestling match, you're clacking two bricks together. It's nothing. Yeah. It's Goliath versus Goliath. There's no real stakes there.
1: And, you know, a lot of people point this out too. And I think that there's some truth to this. They, they didn't really have the budget for this scene again, maybe because they weren't planning on it, but also because they considered a female led movie, a gamble. It just doesn't have the budget that some of the other films do. And so it's almost unfair to compare it, but I see what they're saying.
0: Right. But I do like the moment there when Ares does throw Dr. Poison at the feet of Diana. After yeah. Steve has gone on, gone onto the plane that has the, all the poison bombs there. And he flies up into the upper atmosphere in the attempts to destroy it. He, he knows this is a one-way trip.
1: Yep. Yeah. And, and she doesn't yet. Um, but he gives her the watch, right?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it is heartbreaking because the first time you see it, because she's just suffered a, a deafening con- uh, explosion near her. So she can't hear what Steve's saying. And Patty Jenkins decides to, like, we're going to see it from her perspective. So we're not going to hear what he's saying right here at first. Mm-hmm. But we as an audience know, it's like, oh, we know what he's saying. We We don't have to hear the words.
1: Right, we can tell by his tone. And again, this is where later when she does realize what he's saying, he gives her the watch, which we saw at the beginning of the movie, um, when he explained the concept of time to her. And she said, you know, you let that little thing boss you around. Well, of course, humans have to because we run out of time. And so that's like another big thing she has to learn in
0: the movie. Exactly. And I do, I like the moment here when, St. is flying the plane away, and he's just laughing. He's like, I'm doing. I'm finally. Get, I, I'm able to stop this. But then, the slow realization, like, oh, I'm about to die right now. Mm-hmm. And and I do like it. We just hold him that close up, and we slowly push in on him when he finally realizes, like, all right. And you can imagine Patty's telling Chris Pine to say, "Just think of Gal Gadot right before you do this." Yeah, and like, you can. You can tell what he's thinking, and then he does blow up the plane and die and this is when Diana goes super saiyan and goes ham on all the (laughs) remaining Germans yeah yeah but do you think like all this thing that we've said before with the kind of limitations of the battle and kind of the obligatory nature of it is this still satisfying to you
1: it was to me I, I really didn't notice that it wasn't satisfying until people talked a lot about it I think maybe I don't look forward to these big ending battles the way other people do. And maybe that's why it didn't really have a blip on my radar.
0: <laughs> right. Like I just took it like, Oh, these have superhero movies. And which is the, which yeah. the punch <laughs> <mode>. <laughs> Yep. And it wasn't until this the last night for this review was the first time me rewatching it. Now knowing like, Oh, the third act sucks in this movie here. And with that knowledge and, trying to put that out of my mind but obviously you can't because your subconscious is just going to dwell on that
1: yeah i think there's a part of me that's like trying to see it from their perspective you know like okay well let me put myself in their shoes and see what they're seeing because so many people feel that way but yeah i think it might just be that those kind of scenes are not super important to me that everything else about the movie was overall what drew me to it and not necessarily the fighting
0: right and i love the moment when Diana has an opportunity to kill Dr. Poison and slay the person who was responsible for her love, her love, the love of her life's death. Yeah, that's a
1: good way to, that's a good point.
0: And she doesn't do it. She chooses love.
1: Yeah. And she says it's not about deserve, right?
0: Yeah, it's all about belief. Mm -hmm. That you got to believe that people will do the right thing. That there's belief that people are still good.
1: Yeah, see, she saw all the facets of humanity and she decided that she would rather have a positive view of them and not a negative one.
0: Which is completely conject- uh, contradictory to Ares, where he just sees humanity for all their worse foibles. Yeah.
1: exactly, yep.
0: And so, hey, Ares goes full Zeus by throwing a lightning bolt at Diana and catches it, and is able to repel him back with her gauntlets and end up end up destroying a destroying a god because only a god can kill a god, and a sword was not the god killer she was right and i just I do like that moment here once he's gone, there is a the spirits seem to be lifted for everybody around there, But I love the moment where Chief is standing next to a German officer, and they just kind of, like, take in, like, wow, we, we lived through that, and they just hug each other. Yeah. And I, I like... And I
1: like, too, like, the idea that Zeus sent her as the god killer, but her mother loved her so much, even though she knew that her purpose was to protect them from Ares, she just loved her too much to put her in that situation.
0: Right, and that she, that her real superpower is not sh- strength or flight or anything, it's just, she has... All the, the most amount of compassion somebody could have. Yeah, yeah. And so the movie ends with the the armistice in place and the war is over. People are celebrating in London. And I'll admit I got a little choked up last night when we we see the collage of the people who fallen oh, during yeah. the war and seeing Steve Trevor there. And I'm like, and I literally said to myself, I'm like, <gasps> Nope, nope, not <laughs> doing it.
1: And again, because this movie is pretty anti-war, right? It, to me, that's another reason why being so focused on the last battle doesn't make sense, because that's kind of not the point of the story.
0: Right. And I think that's why it's, it's almost like a Care Bear kind of ending, where she defeats yes. him with the power, of, <laughs> the power of love.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I love it.
0: I love it. Exactly. And so then we cut back to present day when Diane is still reflecting upon the the photo of the entire crew that she was with. And she emails Bruce Wayne thanking him, saying that she'll maybe one day tell him the story about it. And we hear distress in the distance when one woman decides to, we have another Superman 78 moment where instead of Mm -hmm. flying by the screen, she flies through the screen and she jumps into action.
1: Yeah. And, you know, just kind of going back, I, I I don't want to be too negative about this at all, but Um, there was some, there was some review that I had, like, read or listened to, and, you know, they really focused on what they think are flaws in this movie, and I really think this is a moment where it highlights how subjective this really is, because, you know, they kept saying things like, well, I don't like when the whole movie slowed down for that, you know, dancing scene, and I, I, that last battle wasn't very exciting, and I didn't care to hear so much about, you know, their relationship, and I'm like, you know, this is just one of those things where this movie is, going in a different direction and is a different type of film from some of the other superhero films and so you know those other superhero films are not bad or done incorrectly but neither is this one and there's two different audiences I think for those films you know and I think sometimes people it's like here's a template if it doesn't fit this template I don't like it and that's fine you don't have to but it doesn't mean that the movie's bad it just means that it is a different type of film I think
0: Right. I think comic books have shown over 80 years of publication that you can have. It <laughs>
1: can be diverse. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like a Superman story is not going to be the same as an X-Men story or a Sandman story.
1: Right. And and I think, you know, for a long time, a lot of the superhero films were very similar. And we're now getting into this era of, you know, which really started before this. But I mean, you've now you've got your Deadpools and your, you know, different types of, superhero films that don't necessarily fit that same mold and i think as that goes on people are tending to be a little bit more open to it but even in 2017 when this came out i think there were just a lot of people that were like this does not fit my idea (laughs) of what these are supposed to be and and it makes them not like it you know
0: right i mean like you think of like ant-man the wasp and joker they're both comic book movies but they both do things very differently and they're still people still enjoy them for their approaches to storytelling
1: Exactly. Yep. That's a good, that's a good comparison.
0: Yeah. And so uh, final thoughts on Wonder Woman 2017.
1: Um, I, I love it and I never mind revisiting it. I am incredibly pumped for the sequel. And I think that this movie proved that you can have a female lead in a hero position that, you know, isn't necessarily, you know, Sarah Connor, <laughs> but can still be, you know, a very strong positive presence. And I'm glad that we got to see that because I think for a long time in Hollywood, being a, a heroine meant that you had to be really tough as nails and have this really sad backstory and you overcome all this stuff. And I think that those are great stories, but there's just so many to tell. And so this is a different type of story. And I think it's has a lot of value. And I I think it, it gave a lot of hope and inspired a lot of, you know, young viewers, men and women. And I just can't wait to see what they do next with it.
0: Very nice. And I agree with you that this shows that a that you can do female led um, action movies in a different way. You can do comic book movies in a very different way. And just that not all comic book movies can have to be super dour. I think we can have a message of hope <laughs> and everything without it being too schmaltzy or just like, yeah. and I just feel like the more, I guess like the more the, the world turns to a darker and darker place. I think it's, we, we need these movies more and more. And I think that's why this Shazam and Aquaman were so heralded. Like, and they so much they were appreciated because they're the, they, it was lighter touched when it comes to the storytelling and it had been a minute since I rewatched this. And I, as soon as the movie was over, I kicked myself. I'm like, why have like, it's been over a year since I watched this. Why haven't I done this more often?
1: Oh, and, yeah. Same here.
0: <laughs> and I plan to rewatch it a lot more. And I can't, like you, I cannot wait for Wonder Woman 1984. Um, I'm willing to wait until it's safe to go see it. I don't need to see it right right this second here. I'll wait until it's like a safe time to go back to the movie theaters yeah but I, I want to I see the same it. way yeah I'm like if it means I could still see in the movie theater in that format I'm willing to wait like I yes. I, I, I yeah. don't want to see it on my at home first I want to see it on the big screen where it was meant it was intended to be seen mm-hmm. but that's me being a format snob
1: no i mean i agree i i I would rather just wait like some movies i'm like okay i'll see that at home but this movie you know i do think it needs to be on the big screen
0: yeah exactly but yeah and so lisa thank you for taking time every day to talk wonder woman with me yeah of course anytime Uh, Well, thank you and where can people follow you on social media and your podcast if they want to
1: Oh yeah, so you can catch me on Twitter. I'm at ILTM Podcast. Also have an Instagram. I love that movie podcast. And we've got a Facebook group, a Discord group, and uh, you can find my podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, or if you want to check out our website, I love that ilovethatmoviepodcast.com. So, you know, just come hang out, say hi, and uh, maybe have you on my show soon. And obviously, uh, Tim, you know, you've been on my show quite a bit and you need to come back soon too.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was literally thinking about it. I'm like, I got to find something to, do. I was playing Skyrim last night and I'm like, Oh, we got- I could totally talk about it on her show. And I feel like <laughs> it because I didn't write it down. Cause I totally forgotten what oh, I wanted to discuss on your show because I, oh, no worries. Uh, so it'll wake me in the middle of the week and I'm like, Oh, that's the one.
1: <laughs> awesome. Well, no problem. You'll,
0: when you think of it, let me know. will do. And if people want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRunning2, my Instagram at t 1012 my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, Chase, is up. And if you don't want to miss an episode of this show, don't forget to subscribe to it. As well as my other podcasts, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show, which is part of the Real Fans for Real Movies Podcast Network, which you can find at RF4RM.com. And... If you want to help support the show, if you want to leave us a five-star written review on iTunes, really helps get the word out there. If you do so, I will leave if you and you write a review, I'll read it on the show and I'll give you a shout out. So, uh, if you want to get shout out on, on the show, please uh, help out the show. It only takes a minute of your time. Again, Lisa, thank you for taking time every day to talk Wonder Woman with me.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you so much.
0: No problem. Come back next time as we continue to talk about movies and pop culture, and we'll speak to you soon.